you get a table read podcast, and you get a table read podcast. That's right, guys. Today we're talking about Oprah Winfrey, one of the most famous and influential people on the planet. And today we're actually reading a script about a fascinating and often overlooked piece of her history, an embroiled courtroom saga around mad cow disease. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Yes. A little Whitney throwback to the 90s and for Oprah. I think this was the theme to her show for a while. Was it? I think so. Briefly. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yes. That's right, guys. We're actually reading about Oprah today here on the Unproduced Table Read. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a show where we read Hollywood's hottest unproduced pilots and features and interview their writers. Today we have the brilliant Dan Williams in. Dan, thank you for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. We love your script called Beef vs. Winfrey. And I think you very smartly, rather than writing a whole <laughs> biopic about Oprah, focus on a very specific moment of her life, but managed to capture still who she is and kind of the zeitgeist of the era. So we'll have a lot more to talk about in just a little bit. But before we do that, I would like to introduce myself. Guys, my name is Jeff, and I'm surrounded by a group of brilliant actors, including Andrew Guy. I would love for you guys to introduce yourselves and the main characters you're playing today on the show. Uh, Yeah, hi. I'm Andrew Guy. Good morning. And I will be reading for Coin mostly today. I'm Adrienne Snow. I'll be reading for Lawyer Number Two. Just kidding. I'm reading for Oprah. <laughs> no <obviously>. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Alexandra Miles, and I will be reading for Judge Robinson and Gail and numerous others. What's up, everybody? I am Timothy Michael, and I am reading for Lemonian and Dr. Phil today. <laughs> and I'm Hudson Miller, and I'm going to be reading for Angler and Babcock. So. so, Dan, I really like this script, and I think it's got a... As I mentioned, kind of a zeitgeisty element, really kind of capturing the 90s and like the specific moment you're writing about. But I would love for our listeners, for you to kind of give us the 30-second intro, maybe a little bit as to sort of why you chose to write it. Sure. Well, I grew up in Texas, uh, so I feel like I knew a lot of the characters that were there. This takes place in Amarillo. And really the setup, what happens just before the movie starts, is Oprah did a show on dangerous foods. And if you remember, this is 1996, mad cow disease, everyone was talking about. Mm -hmm. And she had... Uh, a vegetarian on who was talking about bad practices going on in cattle feedlots and stuff and how they were feeding diseased cows to other cows and that's how the disease spread. And really just a lot of fear-mongering going on. And Oprah at the end of the episode said that she would never eat hamburger again. Wow. And immediately beef prices just plummeted. Hmm. And so this is what the you know the cattle ranchers responded with. Awesome. Okay, great. Um, so with that, we're going to get into it, guys. This is a feature script called Beef versus Winfrey based on the events that Dan just described for us. It's his script, and we're going to get into it right now. And remember, after this, we're going to have an amazing interview with him as well, so make sure you stick around. All right, fade in. Exterior Cactus Feeders Day. A tractor rolls along dry dirt, towing two trailers, each with sprouts on one side, low to the ground with mealy brown slop flowing out into a line of troughs. Lumbering cows slowly make their way over to eat, and dozens of them, hundreds of them, trough after trough in a succession of fenced-off pens. Extending across the panhandle plains to the horizon, Chiron... Amarillo, Texas, May 1996. A white pickup speeds past, leaving a cyclone of dust behind. Interior, F-350 pickup truck, moving day. Inside the truck, a calloused hand grips the leather steering wheel, wearing a gold ring with a sea of diamonds. Paul Engler, 68, weathered features, crisp white Stetson drives, with a young cattle feeder, Verl Lemonian, denim jacket, sunglasses right beside him. I admire what y'all doing over there in Parrottown. You run a nice, lean operation. Huh. You mean we're small. I mean, you're a real cattleman. You know what this job is all about. 
Unfortunately, I think more and more folks have no idea what we do, what it's like to work a cattle ranch. They know we ain't cowboys like our grandparents used to be, but that don't mean we don't do this for the same reasons, that we don't care about our cattle, that we don't still get up at sunrise, ride our horses whenever we can, get ourselves covered in dusty manure. It ain't glamorous, that's the truth. But it ain't cruel. That's what folks think about us, you know? They think we're heartless businessmen. Now, I started Cactus Feeders to make money. That's for damn sure. But I'll tell you, as far as I'm as far as from Wall Street as you can get. But we're all looking at the same market process, and they ain't looking too good lately. Angler makes a hard turn down another row of feeding pens. Lemonian grabs the handle above the window. I had a reporter call me the other day from the East Coast somewhere. She says to me, why do you grind your sick cows and feed them back to your other cattle? It's a serious question. That's what she thinks we do. I said to her, ma'am, first of all, these are herbivores we're talking about. They ain't got the teeth or the gut for me. And second, my job is to keep my cattle healthy and well-fed. That's my entire job. So I put a lot of time and manpower into making the best plant-based feed I possibly can for them. Why would I do anything else? I mean, what the hell kind of sense would that make? It's disgusting she thinks something like that. She ain't the only one, Verl. The picture out there is that I'm picking up dead cows in the middle of the night, tossing them in the back of my pickup, slicing them up, and dumping bloody cow parts into the feed troughs. Honest to God, that's what the public thinks I do. I'm surprised someone like you cares about public opinion of them. This ain't about me. It's about a whole goddamn industry. You were talking about market prices, and you were right. I've seen them. I've lost nearly $7 million in the last three weeks. Three weeks, huh? Angler stops the truck and sets the parking brake. You've been paying attention to public opinion, too. I figured that. I heard you've been talking to other feeders. So it's true? I'm putting together a group of aggrieved parties. Plaintiffs. And I need you to be a part of it. This is the Alamo, and I can't face Santa Ana alone. The guys at the Alamo didn't make it, Paul. <laughs> yeah, but Texas did. Angler gets out of the truck. Lemonian follows toward a helicopter park on a slab, parked on a slab of concrete. Don't answer yet. Let's take a ride first. Interior helicopter, moving day. Angler has replaced his hat with a pair of headphones and is strapped into a seat across from Lemonian, who squints for a lookout through the open helicopter door. The late afternoon sun glistens off a golden body of water surrounded by a grid of feeding pens. Ooh, boy. Sure is impressive to look at from up here. Shit, is that lake yours, too? It's mine, but it ain't a lake. That's cow piss. <laughs> Lemonian turns away instinctively, and Angler keeps looking outside, ad- admiring. I moved here in 1960 with a simple goal. Make cows fatter, faster. We've been doing that and expanding our operations ever since. Now, we've got nearly half a million heads of cattle here. That's three cows for every damn person in Amarillo. How many helicopters you got? People want beef, Verl. I give them 12 million pounds a week. You're the biggest game in town, I know that. I ain't saying all this to gloat. My point is that I don't need nobody else telling me how to do my job or thinking they even know what it is I do in the first place. And I sure as shit don't need a talk show host to tell people to stop eating fucking hamburgers. People are scared. Because lies are being told about us on television. There's no mad cow in America. There ain't gonna be. Won't happen. But like you said, folks are getting scared off by all this fear-mongering. But is a lawsuit really gonna change anything? We need to take a stand and protect our way of life. Our heritage... Our freedom to live the way our fathers did and their fathers and pass that on to our children. It's under attack and we've got to put a stop to it. Lemonian holds on Angler for a moment. 
So you're gonna sue Oprah. <laughs> Angler puts a hand on Lemonian's shoulder. <clears throat> we're gonna sue Oprah, and we're gonna win. Lemonian nods uneasily, then looks out at that shimmering pond of piss below as Angler sinks back into his padded seat. The sound of the rotor blades slicing through the heat slowly rises, overwhelming until we finally smash cut to interior judge's chamber's day. The last bit of Diet Dr. Pepper is poured from a can into a glass of ice. All we can hear in this tranquil space is the gentle fizz of carbonated bubbles. A diploma from the University of Texas, framed photos of adult children and grandchildren, a collage of kids' artwork taped to the office door. Judge Mary Lou Robinson, 71, sips her drink while reading over a brief at her desk. Then she looks at the clock on her bookshelf, closes the brief. Robinson goes over to her black robe hanging from a coat stand and puts it on over her dress, slips off her cushioned orthopedic shoes and slides into a pair of low black heels, checks her lipstick in a mirror on her bookshelf, and finally Robinson finishes off the last bit of her drink, sets the glass back on her desk, and calmly heads out. The door clicks, closed behind her. Interior courtroom day. Two lawyers are already red in the face, making their arguments before Judge Robinson, now seated at the bench overlooking a pristine but aging courtroom. For the defense, Charles Chip Babcock from Dallas, flanked by his team of half a dozen sitting beside him. No matter how much sway the plaintiffs believe my client has over the public... This isn't time for false modesty about Miss uh, Miss Whitbury's fame, Your Honor. That's Joseph Coyne from Los Angeles, representing the plaintiffs wearing a bolo tie only for effect and spitting on every fifth syllable. There's no way one single offhanded comment on, on only airing of the television program can be responsible for the commodity prices of an entire industry. We don't have to prove causation. Because there isn't any. The defendant made a slanderous statement. We'd object to the term slanderous. But you can't deny the statement was made, and it, it was defamatory. It, it was an opinion. It's the disparagement of a perishable food, which is explicitly illegal. According to a Texas state law that has never been used in a civil suit before, Your Honor. There's a first time for everything. At the back of the otherwise empty gallery, Angler sits, White Stetson in his lap, with Lemonian and three other cattlemen. Angler watches intently, but can feel the nervous glares of his co-plaintiffs. Even if counsel decides to wildly distort the law like this... It's called the False Disparagement of Perishable Food Products Act. I know it's a mouthful, but the law couldn't be any more specific. Cattle are animals, not apples. They're not perishable goods. I disagree. And I think we have the right to argue that in court. This is a waste of the court's time. I think her honor can decide that. And we'll only invite more frivolous lawsuits to follow. Enforcing the law is hardly frivolous, counselor. Both men suddenly fall silent. They face the bench. Robinson is holding up an index finger with her eyes closed. The attorneys straighten their jackets, standing still, quietly waiting. And in the gallery, Lemonian and O'Brien turn to <clears throat> Angler for a reaction. He only leans forward in his seat. Finally, Robinson lowers her hand and opens her eyes. Since there's no precedent to speak of regarding this law, I have to be careful while considering how to proceed. She closes her eyes for a while. No one in the gallery knows what's going on. Babcock checks with his team and they all shrug. Coin doesn't seem phased. Finally, her eyes snap open. I need to go to the bathroom. When I get back, I'll let you know my decision. She quickly gets to her feet as the seated lawyers scramble to stand and exits the courtroom. After a confused beat, Babcock and Coyne return to their respective tables and quietly confer with their teams. Meanwhile, a middle-aged cattleman, W.H. O'Brien, pulls at Angler's shoulder. We're putting our fight in the hands of a trip to the commode. <laughs> I can't do this anymore, Paul. This is what we've been working toward. Yeah, for a year and a half. Lemonian leans over the seat between them. And it's down to this, Bill. Either we go to trial or we don't. We should have taken the settlement. That was an insult. It barely would have covered our legal fees. If the judge says no today, then we're off the hook for all of it. Ourselves. 
What's done is done. <laughs> I shouldn't let you strong arm me into this. I should fucking crusade of yours. You didn't know Paul lobbied to get this law written? That's right. Spent a lot of money, and now he's trying to get his investment back. We're just along for the ride. Before Lemonian can respond, a door opens across the room and Robinson enters. Everyone gets to their feet again until she resumes her seat. The facts of this case are not in contention here. Miss Winfrey said what she said. What's up for debate are the intentions and the consequences of her statement and the show broadcast by her production company. That's a debate I'd like to have. She raises a finger before either lawyer can interject, and in the gallery, Angler grips the chair in front of him. I'm allowing this case to go to trial. The jury selection will begin the first week of January. A beat, then she lowers her head. Babcock is momentarily stunned before finally stepping forward. Your Honor, we'd request a change of venue. Coyne steps around his table, too. This is the proper jurisdiction, Your Honor. I agree. The case was brought before my court. I think it should be tried here, too. There's no way an impartial jury can be found in Amarillo. My clients are citizens of Amarillo, and they have a right to be tried by a jury of their peers. Everyone here has some connection to beef. And everyone has a connection with the defendant. The biggest employer in this city is a slaughterhouse. Counsel can question the broad work, <clears throat> the hardworking men and women of Amarillo all he likes during jury selection. Thank you, Counselor. But I can defend my decision just fine. You may find that a contention, that a connection to the cattle industry does not necessarily make one sympathetic to the claim, to the claimants. I'm confident we can select a jury here that's as impartial as anywhere else. She looks back and forth between the lawyers for a beat and then nods and stands up. I'll see you in a few weeks. With that, she exits the courtroom once more. Babcock and his team gather their papers, somber and shock, and Coyne and his team shake hands, ecstatic. And in the gallery, Lemonian grabs Angler's shoulder. Holy shit. You believe that? We did it. We ain't done nothing yet. Just earned the right to embarrass ourselves in front of a jury of our peers. He heads off down the aisle. Lemonian congratulates the other cattlemen, then Coyne and his team as they approach. Angler stays standing in front of his chair for a beat longer, then slips off his hat, low over his eyes, and allows himself to smile. Cut to Interior Heartbone Productions Hallway Day. Chiron, Chicago, Illinois. Black dress shoes draped in a low hem slacks lumber down a dark linoleum floor. On the walls, we see row after row of framed episode stills of guests on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Diana Ross, Robin Williams, Ellen DeGeneres, Tina Turner. <laughs> Phil McGraw, 47, towering in a dark gray suit, balding with a thick mustache, holds a leather briefcase, stops and looks over the pictures. Behind him, a couple of PAs, followed by hair and makeup artists, push through the double doors, busily chatting. They give a look to McGraw, then huddle closer, whispering and giggling as they disappear through another set of doors. McGraw looks down at his lime green tie and buttons his jacket. Interior, Harper Productions, soundstage day. All the house lights are up as McGraw steps around a camera, looking out, looking out over a light blue stage, showcasing a set of overstuffed chairs. Opposite are endless rows of seats, currently being vacuumed by a crew member. Around the corner, a walkie-talkie chirps, and a production manager wearing a headset spots McGraw and approaches. Can I help you? I'll record the whole show right here, huh? That's right. How many behinds you get into those seats every day? 300? Uh, about 350. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to be down here. Well, I have an appointment with your boss. Well, her office is upstairs. <clears throat> That's where I was. Her secretary, told me to her secretary told me she's running late, but I think I'm getting the runaround. McGraw steps past the manager, looking up at the lights and at the rigging behind the set. 
Not nearly as fancy as it looks on TV. <laughs> Interior Harper Productions Offices Day. The production manager leads McGraw down a carpeted corridor of offices and cubicles, all painted in golden tones with high ceilings of exposed pipes. I told you I was just up here. I want to make sure you found your way back okay. You want to make sure I actually have an appointment. <laughs> a cocker spaniel darts in from the hall and follows McGraw. And up ahead, the manager leans over a secretary's desk. Hey, Alicia, I found this gentleman wandering around downstairs. He says he has a meeting. What's your name? She knows who I am. Do you? We tried to make a last-minute appointment, but it's been impossible to fit anything into her schedule this week. Told you. The manager and secretary finally turn to see McGraw a few yards back on a knee as he pets the Cocker Spaniel. I'm getting the runaround, which is fine since Miss Winfrey's attorneys pay me by the hour pretty darn well, I might add. And I've been on the clock since I got on a plane in Dallas. <laughs> the dog runs off down the hall and McGraw stands. Look, there's only so much time in the day. Everybody's busy. Schedules get full. I understand all that. But it isn't my ass that's getting sued here. It's mine. Standing across from McGraw, holding the Cocker Spaniel in her arms, is Oprah Winfrey, 43, burgundy cardigan and matching pants, hair in a short coif, intimidating confidence yet inviting warmth. Sure is. So I think you'd better find time for a meeting. <laughs> Oprah pets her dog for a moment, then turns and walks back into her office. McGraw follows. Interior, Harper Productions, Oprah's office day. The cozy yet immaculate suite is decorated with murals and a built-in bookshelf full of Emmys, several couches, and a door leading into a huge walk-in closet. Two producers sit in chairs in front of Oprah's desk, Katie Davis and Jim Kelly. Producer Ellen Bakaiten sits on the floor with papers spread over an ottoman. Oprah sets the spaniel on one of the couches and points to each of the producers as she goes back to her desk. This is Katie, Jim, and Ellen. We're preparing for next month's shows. Everyone, this is one of my lawyers. Trial consultant. Phil McGraw. It's nice to meet you, Phil. But what do I need a consultant for? I thought you all were going to make this go away. Unfortunately, it's not going anywhere. This whole thing is so stupid. To get this upset over an honest reaction that I had, isn't that stupid? Well, it's dead serious. Maybe for you, but I don't have time. You need to wake up. McGraw drops his briefcase, grips the sides of Oprah's desk, and leans over toward her. You're in a dogfight here, and you're going to have to fight this all the way to the end, because if you don't, the line at the Sue Oprah window will get longer. Hmm. So even if this case doesn't bankrupt you, the next ones will. I promise you that. Katie Davis closes her binder and gets up. We'll be down in my office. We can pick this up later. As she exits, the other two producers follow and close the door behind them. McGraw collects himself and moves to the seat across from Oprah. Don't ever raise your voice to me. Not in my office, not in front of my staff. Is that clear? Yes, ma'am. Good. This is dead serious, you said. I know you wish this whole thing wasn't happening, but it is. Do you think I might lose? In front of a jury of 12 Texans? Anything's possible. That's why we need you to come to Amarillo. I already gave my deposition. One of the most degrading things I've ever had to do, sitting across from those smug lawyers. I'm not going to Texas. I won't give them the satisfaction. Forget about the lawyers. The jury needs to know you'll defend yourself. People need to see you fight this. Well, I can't leave Chicago. I have a show to produce. Figure something out. Easy for you to say. There's nothing easy about this. It's a trial, you understand me? A trial. They call it that for a reason. Oprah nods, considering, then looks over at McGraw's briefcase on the floor. You know, you have a little flair for the dramatic. I needed to get your attention. Mm, well, you have it. <laughs> As Oprah leans back in her chair and McGraw retrieves his briefcase, we prelap. But there's absolutely no way I'm going to Texas. Cut to interior, water tower, place, Oprah's condo night. Oprah sinks into her sofa in the living room of the palatial 56th floor apartment overlooking the Chicago skyline. 
Oprah, you don't have a choice. Gail King, 42, bob with bangs, oversized sweatshirt and jeans, loves giving Oprah shit, carries two glasses of wine from the kitchen, wears Stedman Graham, 46, salt and pepper mustache, dress rolled up, puts away dishes. Of course I do. Life is all about the choices we make. Okay, but sometimes those choices are made for you. That's the situation you're in right now. She hands Oprah a glass and sits down across from her. They're going after me for a reason. You're a target. For being too successful. Anyone else in this country is celebrated, but I need to be put in my place. Oh, stop pouting. Gail finishes her glass as Oprah glares at her. I'm not saying you were wrong about any of it. I know what's going on here as well as you do, but whining and wallowing, it's not you. What are you afraid of? Stedman sets the bottle of wine on the coffee table in front of Gail and steps behind Oprah to rub her shoulders. I don't like being told what I can and can't say. You've been dealing with that forever. That's not what's got you scared. I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm resentful. I don't appreciate being interrogated. Having my integrity called in question, putting my company under the spotlight. Lawsuits have a way of airing all your dirty laundry, sure. Well, that's why I wanted to settle. I told my lawyers to end this. Well, if you want something done right... I can't go to Texas for God knows how long. That consultant told you to fight this, so you need to fight it. Gail refills their glasses. You're going to go down there and do what you do best. Put on a show. <laughs> With a mischievous grin, Gail holds her wine up for a toast. Oprah taps the glass but can't help but smile herself. Smash cut to exterior Interstate 40 day. On a patch of dirt along the highway, ten vintage Cadillacs stick out of the ground, lined in a row, and covered in bright neon graffiti. Chiron, Amarillo, Texas, January 1998. A truck towing a horse trailer passes by, then a satellite truck with the local CBS decal drives past, then one with the NBC logo, then CNN. Exterior Polk Street day. A quiet downtown, an Art Deco Paramount Theater sign on one side of the street, an historic black brick and terracotta bank, now a Marriott on the other. Then, a fleet of news vans, satellite trucks, and production trailers rumble through. Exterior, Big Texan Steak Ranch Day. A reporter and camera crew set up in front of the yellow and blue western-style restaurant, next to a 20-foot-tall statue of a cow. Exterior, J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. The parking lot is overrun with news crews unloading equipment in front of a nondescript courthouse. Passers-by stop across the street to watch. Local police officers divert traffic around the chaos. We follow a pickup truck driving by with a bumper sticker on the back windshield. The only mad cow in Amarillo is Oprah. Interior, law office of Kevin A. Isern Day. Low ceilings lined with fluorescent lights. Paralegals shuffle boxes stacked in hallways into cramped offices where young associates sort through files and hunch over a couple of Dell computers. Kevin Issern, local personal injury lawyer, steps through the clutter into the doorway. We just have the one printer, sorry. There's a Kinko's down the street if you need to make copies. The associates barely nod as they continue working, passing briefs back and forth, highlighting and stapling pages. Issern moves on down the hall toward a conference room turned tuned in to Texas Beef Group headquarters. A TV at the end of the long table shows a national news broadcast of a reporter standing in front of a herd of cattle. Angler furiously taps on the table, shouting at coin standing, shouting at coin standing across the table. If that guy calls me a farmer one more time, I want to sue his ass. Coin walks over and switches off the television. Eh, don't worry about the press. They're making us seem like a bunch of goddamn bunch of tumbleweed chewing yokels. It doesn't matter. It's going to be a local jury. 
Beside him, Rick Perry, 47, thick hair stuck in place, Texas star pin on his lapel, swings his boots off the table to sit up straight in his chair. These folks know you best, Paul. You can count on them. Coin, coin, lean, coin notices insert in the doorway and waves. Kevin, come on in. These are your offices after all. Thanks for letting us take over. Not sure if you know your state agricultural commissioner. Rick Perry. <laughs> Kevin Isern, nice to meet you. Have y'all heard she's bringing the whole show to Amarillo? Angler sits down, pissed. Coin looks off and nods. It's causing a lot of extra media attention, but it won't affect our trial. Horseshit! She's trying to influence the jury. Look, the judge issued a strict gag order, so she's not allowed to discuss the trial at all. Oh, you think that'll stop her? It's contempt of court if she does. She's too smart for that. Whole thing still smells like shit. <laughs> Perry taps the table and steps closer to Angler. It smells like fear to me. She's afraid of the lawsuit because she knows you're in the right here. He slaps Angler's shoulder. We're all pulling for you in Austin. You need anything, you just give me my office a call. And when this trial starts, I want you to go and blow the hell out of him. With a finger, run, with a finger gun point to everyone in the room, Rick Perry exits and coin shows him out. Left alone with Angler, Isern looks around the room for a moment, then offers... Having Oprah here might actually work in y'all's favor, Paul. People in Amarillo, they don't want all the cameras and attention. I don't think they're going to like having her here one bit. Cut to exterior Amarillo International Airport tarmac day. A black Chevy Suburban drives across the empty tarmac toward a parked Gulfstream. The jet door slowly lowers. A beat. Then, Oprah emerges wearing sunglasses, carrying a cocker spaniel in each arm, and, and descends the stairs. She sets the dogs down, and they take off toward the Suburban as the driver opens the side door for them. Oprah lowers her sunglasses and sees something in the distance. A couple hundred yards away, in the private parking lot behind a chain-link fence, dozens of people are screaming towards, or towards Oprah's plane. It takes a moment, then we realize they're cheering. These are fans holding homemade signs welcoming Oprah to Texas. She offers them a way back, smiling, then gets into the waiting suburban with her dogs. Exterior, City Hall Day. A handful of city employees stand in front of the three-story building overlooking a long horizontal fountain stretching toward the road. They watch as Oprah's suburban drives past, followed by two identical black SUVs. Mayor Kel Seliger, 44, round-faced, red nose, steps out with them and lights a cigarette. Well, nothing for us to do about this. They asked for a police escort to, to the, from the courthouse, to and from the courthouse. Looks like they're navigating the roads just fine. Well, what about all the vans and trucks showing up lately? Look, I spoke to Chief Neal. He's going to make sure everyone's traffic's not an issue. Everybody's got to have permits. <clears throat> he knows not to let this turn into a circus. It might be too late. We might have to accommodate. Yeah, let's not forget who we're working for. Citizens of Amarillo, not a bunch of media folks looking to make a mess of this city. Shouldn't we at least coordinate with Oprah? Miss Winfrey's not getting any red carpet rollouts. No key to the city, no flowers. You hear me? Behind them, the doors open and an exasperated city clerk steps outside. All the phone lines are down. For who? For the whole city. Southwestern Bell said it's going to take a few hours, maybe till tomorrow, before they can get them back up. Well, what the hell happened? Their stations got overloaded with calls. Seliger waits for the clerk to finish. He looks around for a moment, uncertain, and then... Oprah show just aired the number for people to call for tickets. <laughs> a tense beat. Then Seliger flicks his cigarette into the fountain and goes back inside the building, slamming the door behind him. Cut to exterior Atterbury Inn day. A ten-sweet brick bed and breakfast. 
The trio of black suburbans are parked in the covered driveway next to a few luxury cars. Oprah's entourage of assistants unload suitcases and large plastic bins. Interior Atterbury in day. Inside, the two cocker spaniels run from room to room. Racks of clothes are hauled upstairs. Sheets from the beds are pulled off and replaced. Blackout drapes are pulled and closed for privacy. In the living room, several producers, Katie Davis, Ellen Bakatan, and Jim Kelly among them, put up index cards on a portable corkboard. In the dining room, Babcock and his team of attorneys organize folders and briefs. And in the kitchen, Howard Lyman, 59, big glasses, former cattleman-turned-animal rights activist, searches the refrigerator. Lots of yogurt, cottage cheese, chicken salad. Finally, he takes out a jar of peanut butter and starts slicing an apple open on the counter. Is this the best food you could find here? Lyman shrugs as Oprah opens the refrigerator. Oh, look at all this yogurt. Nothing tells people you're on a diet like a fridge full of yogurt. I don't eat it. That's right. You're like a super vegetarian. Ethical vegetarian. Some people, they call us vegans. Oh, vegans. All right. Well, hope you don't mind, but I'm going to be stress eating my way through some low-fat raspberry yogurt. (laughs) Lyman hands her a plastic spoon as she takes a seat on a bar stool across from him. It's been almost two years, but I keep playing that episode in my mind over and over, even though I've never actually seen it. How many times have you watched? Well, not since it aired. Really? I can't go back and change anything. Not that I would. Nothing to do but move forward. Well, I'm sorry to have gotten us into this trouble. I invited you on my show. You were my guest, and you said what you needed to say. There's nothing to apologize for. But don't expect to be invited back anytime soon. (laughs) Fair enough. They both look over as Babcock enters with Phil McGraw. I'm in Texas. Moved my whole show all the way down here. Are you happy? Can't you tell? (laughs) He holds on her expressionless. Oprah points at him with her yogurt-tipped spoon. I'm going to get you to smile by the end of this. Babcock takes the stool next to Oprah. Before you begin taping, I want to make sure that you're clear on the judge's directive. No talking about the trial. I understand. You can't be seen as sending any kind of a message to the jury or trying to sway. I said I understand. Babcock nods, gives an uneasy look to McGraw, and Oprah notices and stands. I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but I'm doing my show. Maybe I don't have any control over what's happening with this case, but I do have some control over the court of public opinion. I've never lost there before, and I'm not about to start now. She drops her yogurt in the trash and leaves. As Babcock and McGraw exchange looks again, Lyman scoops some peanut butter with an apple slice. Do you think we could get any hummus? <laughs> As he crunches into a snack, we cut to exterior Amarillo Little Theater Day. Close on, a freestanding stand- free brick sign. The Amarillo Little Theater presents... And beneath, the Oprah Winfrey Show. A group of fans gathers near the sign, hundreds of them, in a line stretching down an otherwise empty block to a parking lot filled with production and talent trailers. Interior Amarillo, Le- Amarillo Little Theater Day. The audience is on their feet applauding. The stage is nearly identical to the one in the Chicago studio, but the lights are hung lower and there are a few grandstanded seats. The large screen behind the stage shows Oprah in Texas. Oprah, dressed in a red pantsuit with a red turtleneck, holds a microphone and stands just off stage. Finally, she walks out, waving at the audience. They're clapping and cheering wildly for her. Eventually, they settle back into their seats, and Oprah takes center stage. Well, I'm in Texas, I guess you heard. The audience cheers and laughs, and Oprah offers a wry smile. You also heard I'm not allowed to talk about why I'm here, so I ain't saying nothing about about it. <laughs> she pulls her finger over her lips to even more applause. We see producer Katie Davis watching from off stage, laughing despite herself. While we're here, I thought I'd get to know the Lone Star State. That's why y'all call it. That's what y'all call it, right? The Lone Star State. 
I thought I'd get to know some of the fine folks here a little better. Folks like Patrick Swayze. Holds. And then? And country music legend Clint Black. Holds again. We'll have plenty of incredible guests and surprises, so, to, so tell all your friends we are bugging for tickets. Who are bugging you for tickets not to worry. We can't say why, but we're going to be here for a long time. As the audience claps, Oprah smiles into the camera for a long, satisfying beat, and then we cut to exterior Seliger home evening. Kel Seliger gets out of his Buick, parked in the driveway under a sprawling oak tree, and flicks his cigarette into the street. Nearly a dozen cars are parked in front of his house, including a black suburban across the street with a driver wearing sunglasses and watching through the window. Seliger looks up and down the block one more time, curious as he reaches the front door. Interior Seliger home continuous. As Seliger enters, we can hear fury, a fury of women's voices and laughter nearby. Nancy, you having a party I don't know about? Kind of. Seliger rounds the corner to find his wife, Nancy Seliger, getting up from their sofa, crowded into the living room with several other housewives, plates of crackers and fruit, wine glasses and a few open bottles, paperbacks stacked around, and Oprah suddenly shaking his hand. You must be Mayor Seliger. So nice to meet you. I'm... Oh, he knows who you are. The women behind her laugh. This is my first time in Amarillo, and I must say I really am enjoying myself. It's a wonderful city. Well, thank you. Thanks to your lovely wife, who was kind enough to invite me to her book club. Was she? So nice of her. And since I really don't know anyone here, I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to get a lay of the land. Well, my wife is very generous. And her friends, oh, you ladies are too much, too much. As they giggle behind her, Oprah takes Nancy's hands. Thank you again for inviting me to your beautiful home. I should be getting back now. To Seliger? We're staying at the Atterbury Inn, where I, which I heard they're calling Camp Oprah. <laughs> Don't you love that? And now, thanks to your wife, I know where to get my hair done while I'm here. So, I'll be just fine. Oprah waves a goodbye to the other housewives and lets herself out through the front door. Seliger watches her cross the street to her driver and waiting suburban. Quietly seething, Seliger turns back to his wife and she shrugs. What? She's very nice. <laughs> Nancy goes back to her friends in the living room as Seliger closes the door. Cut to exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building morning. The sidewalks are jammed with barely controlled pandemonium. Reporters bundled for the early morning cold from CNN and Entertainment Tonight talk to cameras stationed in front of the courthouse. Fans cheer while holding signs. God and Oprah are number one in our hearts. And go, Oprah! Someone wearing a cow costume holds another sign. Eating meat increases your risk of cancer. A group of people in marching band uniforms play the Andy Griffith... Andy Griffith show theme song with kazoos. Everyone rushes toward the front steps of the building as a black suburban approaches. Police officers have to hold back the crowd of onlookers and shouting reporters. Babcock exits the SUV, followed by Oprah and McGraw, who blocks her from the camera like a bodyguard. They quickly climb the stairs and enter the courthouse. Further down the sidewalk, Angler, Lemunyan, and O'Brien approach with Coyne and the other lawyers. Noticeably, no cameras are pointed their way. And yeah, what the hell happened to our hometown advantage? Angler shrugs O'Brien off and pushes his way through the jostling reporters toward the entrance. He leers at the cow costume on his way up to the steps, then takes his hat off as he goes through the front door. Interior courtroom day. Silence inside. The seats in the gallery are packed, but there's no cameras and certainly no cheering. Coyne and his team sit with Angler and the other plaintiffs at one table. Babcock and his colleagues sit with Oprah and Lyman at the other. McGraw sits in front of the gallery directly behind them, keeping his own notes. From behind the bench, Judge Robinson addresses the potential jurors seated in the box and off to one side. So, on behalf of the state of Texas, I would like to thank you all for your service. I will be handing things off to the attorneys representing both the plaintiffs and the defendants who will 
who will ask about yourself and your beliefs. Things might get a little personal, but please answer truthful, thoughtfully and truthfully. With that, she nods toward the plaintiff's table. Coin stands, buttoning his jacket, and steps up to a small podium facing the jury box. Thank you, Your Honor. I'll start with juror number one, please. Good morning, sir. Morning. How do you feel about beef? I like it just fine. And uh, how often would you say you eat beef? A hamburger or steak? Nearly every day, probably. Do you work with beef at all? I used to work at a register at Whataburger. Sure, yeah, that qualifies. <laughs> now I work at the Cargill Processing Plant outside Plainview. Well, that certainly qualifies. Thank you. Cut to Babcock at the podium, checking his notes <clears throat> as he questions potential jurors. Are you familiar with any of my clients, Miss Johansson? Of course. I watch her show every day after I pick my kids up from school. Would you say that you're a fan of Miss Winfrey's? A big fan. Hi, Oprah. <laughs> Cut to coin questioning another juror. You've never seen the Oprah Winfrey show? I don't own a television. So you have no idea who she is? I know who she is now. Someone gave me a button with her face on it just the other day. A button? Yes, sir. Got it right here in my pocket. He reaches into his jeans and pulls out a round campaign button, handing it to Coyne. The image is a picture of Oprah's face, covered by a red circle with a line across it. <laughs> Cut to Coyne, Babcock, and their teams huddling, huddling in front in a far <clears throat> corner of the courtroom with Judge Robinson, pointing to legal pads covered in post-it notes, speaking with hushed voices. Angler gives a look to Oprah, but she stares straight ahead, betraying nothing. Cut to Coyne and Babcock standing at their, rep- at their respective tables, holding their notes and addressing Judge Robinson. Your Honor, we, uh, we would please like to thank and dismiss juror number seven. Robinson makes a note herself and looks to the jury box. Juror seven, you're excused. The court thanks you for your service. Juror seven nods, gets up and exits the courtroom. Then it's Coyne's turn. Uh, your Honor, we'd like to please thank and dismiss juror two. And then as juror two exits... Juror number one, Your Honor. Cut to coin questioning a new batch of jurors. Have you ever worked for a cattle feeder or meat processing facility? No, sir. Any connection to the beef industry at all? My grandfather was a fourth-generation cattleman, but he sold his ranch before I was born. Behind coin, Babcock taps his pencil on his legal pad before making a note, and we cut to now Babcock is at the podium. Juror number ten, are you familiar with any of my clients? I've seen Oprah show a few times. Did you watch the episode in which uh, my other client... Mr. Lyman appeared. No. Never seen him before. Cut to Coin leaning against a podium, scrunching his face. And you're not a... <clears throat> I have trouble even saying the word myself, so forgive me, but <laughs> you're not a vegetarian, are you, ma'am? Lyman clenches his teeth. No, sir. I've been eating meat all my life. <laughs> cut to Coin and Babcock huddled in the corner with Robinson again. And we cut to jurors filing out of the box, replaced by new ones as the waiting pool of potential jurors in the gallery dwindles. Cut to Coyne passing notes back and forth with his legal team. At the other table, Babcock rearranges post-its on a file folder. Both lawyers look back toward the jury box, whispering. Noticeably, juror number five and juror number ten are still there. Judge Robinson finishes a glass of iced Dr. Pepper. What do we think, counselors? Coyne stands. The plaintiffs are satisfied with the juries assembled, Your Honor. Robinson makes a note, then looks to the other table. Babcock leans in close to Oprah. I think this is the best we're going to do. Oprah glances at the jurors again. Eight women and four men, all white. She looks to McGraw behind her, and he nods in agreement. Finally, Oprah does as well, and Babcock stands. Your Honor, we're also satisfied with the jury as assembled. Very good. Thank you, counsel. For those of you not selected, your jury duty has been fulfilled. You can go back to the main office to check out. Thank you for your time. As the potential jurors get up to leave, McGraw folds up his notebook and exits as well. Robinson turns to the jury box. 
This may not be a house of worship, but the court of law is, sac is a sacred institution. As such, I expect everyone to treat it with respect. That includes the way you dress. She surveys the entire courtroom. Moving forward, I expect everyone's Sunday best. Suits and ties for men, skirts and dresses for women. Oprah looks down in her pantsuit, then leans to back toward Babcock and whispers. Is she serious? I wouldn't test it. Judge Robinson motions toward the jury box. Now, if you will all please stand, our clerk is going to swear you in. Cut two. Interior Atterbury Inn living room night. Late at night in the downstairs den turned production office, Ellen Bakatin is passed out on a couch with a blanket draped over her. Katie Davis has fallen asleep in a chair with a thick binder open on her lap. Oprah stands at the center of the room eating a cup of yogurt and reading over a sprawling color-coded show cards pinned to the corkboard. Besides Patrick Swayze and Clint Black, we see big hair, big purses, multi-millionaire bachelors, cheating husbands, Texas justice, addicted to dieting. Oprah's eyes narrow, and she looks down at her empty yogurt. Behind her, Davis blinks awake. Nothing like an impromptu road trip to keep us on our toes. Oprah remains silent, looking up at the board, and Davis sits up, stretching. I heard we actually got a little ratings bump. In a horse race, you have to keep your head down. And don't look back at how the other horses are doing. I know we're not looking back, but considering we've had to pull together, I'd say the shows we have gone pretty well so far. So far. What's wrong? Oprah shakes her head. Davis leans forward, concerned. If something's not right, you should tell us. I will. You know, we're working as hard as we can for you. We've all left our families back in Chicago to be out here. If you want to go home, then go. Davis tenses, Oprah exhales, and finally turns around. I'm sorry, that, that wasn't fair. I know everyone's sacrificing, but you shouldn't have to. This lawsuit shouldn't involve you. But it does. We're a part of Harpo, too. Oprah nods, then leaves, and Bakatin rolls over on the couch. There's a ringing endorsement. She's under a lot of stress. Then she needs to sleep before she really gets cranky. She gets up and drags her blanket upstairs, leaving Davis confused and concerned. Interior Atterbury Inn, dining room night. McGraw stands in the doorway to the kitchen, watching his bad cock. Tie off, sleeves rolled up. Proof reads some papers at the table with his associates buzzing around him. You can file all the motions you want, but that judge isn't going to change her mind. She has to interpret the laws written. A jury has been selected. She's going to leave it up to them. I'm telling you, the judge is going to see this through to the finish. What are we doing now? Babcock looks up as Oprah enters, and the associates momentarily freeze, and the room settles. We're trying to get the suit thrown out. It's clearly been filed under a law that doesn't apply here. Oh, haven't we tried this before? Of course. Hasn't worked. So what's different? Nothing. Babcock leans forward, ignoring McGraw, to Oprah. If it doesn't work, then it's the argument we'll make to the jury. The jury isn't going to be able to follow. Give him some credit. I am. I have trouble following all of this legal jargon. I can, I can walk the jury through it. Oprah sits down across from Babcock. Then let's go. Explain it to me. Uh, this lawsuit was filed under what's known as the veggie libel law. <laughs> veggie libel. That's exactly what the jury is going to say. Uh, under the law, you're not allowed to make any false claims about perishable foods. I never said anything false. It doesn't matter. It matters to me. Look, I know. I know it does. But the point we're making is about the perishable foods part of the law. Perishable foods are ones that go bad if you leave them out. These plaintiffs raise cows. The cows, last I checked, don't spoil, and they stay out in the sun too long. Oprah nods slowly, smiling as she looks over to McGraw. Makes sense to me. McGraw holds up his hands and wants no part of this. Let's do it. She smacks her hand on the table, decision made, and gets up to leave the dining room. Babcock glances at McGraw with a smug grin, and McGraw rolls his eyes. Don't blame me when you put the poor jury to sleep tomorrow. 
He ducks out to the kitchen as Babcock and his team hurriedly get back to work. Cut to interior courtroom day. Oprah, now wearing a long skirt, watches as Coyne steps around from the plaintiff's table and approaches the witness stand where Engler is seated. <clears throat> Could you please start by introducing yourself to everyone? Sure. I'm Paul Engler, owner of the Cactus Feeders Incorporated. And you're one of the plaintiffs in this case? That's correct. And why did you file this lawsuit, sir? I make my living by raising and selling cattle, and I filed this lawsuit because things were said about me and my industry on national television that are not true. They're lies, and I lost a lot of money because of it. I had to lay off employees, hard-working folks who did absolutely nothing wrong. I'm doing this for them. Coyne waits a moment as the jury takes this in, then he steps aside and gestures toward the defense table. Now, there are multiple parties named in the lawsuit, but I want to start with the defendant, Howard Lyman. What did Mr. Lyman say on the Oprah Winfrey show that caused you and your peers harm? He said we were feeding sick cows to our healthy ones and that would make and that would make them sick too. And is this true? Hell no. Sorry, ma'am. We've never done anything like that. Never would. Now, why would Mr. Lyman say something like that? Babcock stands. Objection, Your Honor. He's asking the witness to speculate. Uh, I'll rephrase. Have you ever heard a claim like this before? Uh, Years ago, I read a story or two, uh, but we don't do that at any of my ranches, and I've never seen it done anywhere else. Even so, we've made new rules at the National Cattlemen's Foundation to make sure it never does happen. And have there ever been any cases of mad cow disease in the United States? No, never. And if someone said they were scared to eat beef because... I'd tell them they've got no reason to be. It's completely safe, always has been. If they think otherwise, it's because they're being lied to. Babcock rises again. Objection. Finished, Your Honor. He goes back to his seat, and Angler sits up in his chair as Babcock approaches. Mr. Angler, you told us that your business is raising and selling cattle, correct? That's right. You sell livestock to processing plants, slaughterhouses that kill the cows and turn them into beef products. Yes, sir. I just want to be clear that you're in the cattle industry, not the beef industry. I see a distinction, but the price I get for the cattle is tied directly to the price of beef, which has been dropping ever since that episode aired. But you don't sell beef, you sell cattle. And how old are one of your cows when you sell them? 18, 20 months? Almost two years old. That's a long shelf life. That's average for the industry. What what I mean is that you filed this suit under a... Disparagement of perishable f- under a disparagement of perishable foods law, which is intended for products that go rotten if they're not refrigerated or frozen. Oprah keeps an eye on the jury. One of them yawns, another blinks to stay awake, and Babcock senses he's losing them and steps closer to the box while addressing Angler. But it doesn't seem to me, Mr. Angler, that a two-year-old cow counts as perishable. Coin stamps. Objection, Your Honor. <clears throat> Counsel's instructing the jury on the law. Please refrain from testifying for the witness. Do you have a question for him? Babcock nods and turns back to Angler. Why do you you think cows qualify as perishable foods? I sell beef cattle. Maybe you have have a taste for frozen burger patties, but beef is best when it's fresh, straight from the butchers, and it doesn't last long after you buy it. Ask anyone, mostly because you go home that night and cook it. So I'd say beef is very perishable. The jury nods following along now. Behind Oprah, McGraw subtly shakes his head. Babcock returns to his table, slightly flustered, and picks up his notes. You said that you don't put restricted animal material in your cow feed. 
I don't, but I don't put any animal material, period. It's illegal now. But we never did even before that. Never. Not one feeder has ever, not, th- not that I know of, in the entire industry. Coin gets up. Asked and answered, Your Honor. It's okay, Your Honor. I want to make it clear that we're <clears throat> what we're feeding our cattle. It's all from plants, mostly corn, plus some added vitamins. He motions back toward the back of the gallery. One of my employees has some uh, here, if I can show everybody. Jorge? Uh, everyone, turns as a, uh, everyone turns as a broad Latino man. Jorge Gonzalez carries a five-gallon plastic bucket up the aisle. Your Honor? Counsel asked about the feed. I think my client should be allowed to answer. Jorge stops at the swinging door, waiting with everyone else for Judge Robinson's response. She considers for a moment, then waves Jorge through. Let's see what's in the bucket. Babcock shakes his head in disbelief. Angler gets up, rolling his sleeves, and comes around the front door of the witness stand. Jorge sets the bucket down and starts prying off the lid. We steam flake the corn, which helps break it down for easier digestion. Jorge here is in charge of fine-tuning the mix with other grains to get it just right, just get just the right nutrients for the cows. Jorge pops the lid. Angler plunges his hand into the bucket and pulls up a handful of deep yellow mush with the consistency of undercooked oatmeal. There's nothing in here I wouldn't eat myself. The mixture slops through his fingers as he brings some up for a taste. While Babcock's objection is interrupted by coins, people in the gallery starting to chatter, the jurors clamoring with questions, and Judge Robinson bangs her gavel, and Oprah looks visibly nauseous. We smash cut to interior Atterbury Inn, upstairs hallway night. A toilet flushes behind a closed bathroom door. We hear the sink run and the squeak of a hand towel rack. Then the door opens, revealing Katie Davis, uneasy, pale, holding her stomach. She looks up at McGraw. Do I have to do this? Our dismissal was rejected, so the trial goes on. I honestly don't think I can. I know you're a ball of nerves, but I'll make sure you're prepared. Just the idea. She closes her eyes and swallows. You prep guests for your show all the time. This is the same type deal. Are you trying to take my job? Oh, no. I wouldn't, be in, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. He grins as he heads downstairs, leaving Davis, her smirk fading and her gut clenching. Interior, Atterbury Inn, dining room night. Oprah stands in the doorway as Davis sits at the head of the dining table, and Babcock brings her a glass of water. Look, I'll start by having you walk through, uh, walk the jury through the Dangerous Foods episode, you know, how you booked the guests, and how you edited the interviews. Davis nods, nervous, and McGraw sets a bottle of Mylanta beside her. She smiles appreciatively. Just answer as straightforward as possible. We don't have anything to hide here. Then the other lawyers are going to press you on intent. Were you trying to make the cattle ranchers look bad? We weren't. So you've got nothing to worry about. Besides, you're not journalists, right? You're not making a news show. You're making entertainment. Oprah steps forward. I do try to inform my viewers. Of course, but you're not their news source. Well, I hope I am a source of the truth. Babcock tries to calm her indignation. Yes, and that's important. You're, you're not saying anything untruthful. I don't lie to my audience. I'm always honest with them. And that's why they watch your show, to hear what you have to say. They're not watching to find out the news. They don't expect you to be a journalist. Back to Davis. Right? What's the primary goal of the show? To entertain people. Oprah interjects again. That's not my goal. She leans over the table, commanding the room. Since I first went on the air, I have tried to empower my audience with information and points of view that they can't find anywhere else. An uncomfortable beat. I think we're saying the same thing. I don't believe we are. Oprah stares him down. Babcock is unsure how to respond. Finally, McGraw cuts through the tension. It's getting late, and I think Katie here knows what she has to do tomorrow. (laughs) Maybe let's call it a night. Davis gets up, appreciative, as Oprah leaves and goes upstairs. 
and Babcock avoids McGraw's knowing look. Cut to exterior Plum, Plum Creek Drive dawn. The sun barely peeks over the distant horizon along an empty stretch of road with a smattering of suburban homes on one side and a Walmart on the other. Oprah jogs on the sidewalk past a row of newly planted trees alongside her personal trainer. A black suburban slowly trails behind them and a few fans wave across the street, but Oprah's eyes are focused only straight ahead. Cut to interior, <coughs> interior courtroom day. Coin leans against the witness stand where Davis is seated, facing the jury. His voice is calm. And Ms. Davis, your first guest was a grandmother from England. Yes. Her granddaughter was in a coma after eating a hamburger infected with mad cow disease. In England? That's right. You couldn't find an American guest? No. And why is that? Because there hasn't been a mad cow disease case in America there yet. There aren't any cases of mad cow disease in the United States. Okay, <clears throat> so you found a guest from England. Mad cow has been in the news a lot lately, and we wanted people who could talk to Oprah about it with first-hand experience. And who was your second guest? It was a woman. Also from England. Yes, a woman from England whose mother-in-law has passed away from the disease. You began your show with two tragic, heart-wrenching stories from overseas. Then you finally had someone from the U.S., National Beef Association. And what did he tell the audience? He tried to assure people that, the, that U.S. beef was safe. And do you know how long he spoke during that episode? I, I'm not sure. I counted 28 seconds. Does that sound right? Could be. Only 28 seconds. Now, on the day of the episode tape, did he have more to say about the Beef Society? I mean, our interviewers, our interviews generally run longer than what we air, so we, we do edit them down. But why would you edit down this interview, though? It seems important to me. There's a lot of material, sir, and this guest didn't connect as much with our audience as the others. He was boring. Babcock uh, leans forward in his chair. Leading. Judge Robinson nods, coin acquiesces, and steps away from the witness stand to pace in front of the jury. What did Miss Winfrey think about this particular interview? She agreed that we should cut it down. We, we always do our best to present both sides, and we're not, but we're not journalists. We, we want to tell compelling stories. You've said that you're not producing the news, that your show is for entertainment. But at what cost? You realize even if it's for the sake of entertainment that you can cause real harm to real people. You do understand that. Babcock objects from his seat. Your Honor. Let's get to the question without the condescension, please. Coyne nods in agreement as he picks up notes from the plaintiff's table. <clears throat> One of your producers told us in, in a de uh, deposition that you taped a show about kidnapping a couple years ago, but decided not to air it. Is that correct? Yes. What was wrong with that particular episode? We, th we thought... The show presented a lot of details about kidnapping, and we thought we might inadvertently encourage someone who didn't already have the idea. You thought you might encourage a kidnapper. You believe that you have an influence over your audience like that. We thought, we thought it was an un unnecessary risk. Of course. Especially for Miss Winfrey, who could be a target for such a crime. Was she the one who decided to cancel the show? There were several producers involved in that decision, myself included. But ultimately, it's Miss Winfrey's decision. It's her show. She owns Harpo Productions. Babcock stands up to object to this, exasperated. The witness has answered the question, Your Honor. <clears throat> she has. Thank you, Miss Davis. Coyne goes back to his seat, passing Babcock and Oprah with a smug expression. Cut to exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. Reporters and photographers crowd around the courthouse entrance, shouting questions. The doors open and McGraw shields Oprah as she hurries to the waiting SUV. Interior Chevy Suburban Moving Day. Oprah sits in the back, eyes focused out the window, and in the middle seats, McGraw and Babcock exchange looks. Finally, Babcock turns around and Oprah cuts him off. You need to make this go away before it tears my company apart. Babcock tries to respond. No excuses. 
Am I clear? Babcock nods, turns back around, and the SUV ride continues in an uncomfortable silence. Then we hear the gentle strum of a guitar and a, a woman's low timbre. You could have your choice of men, but I could never love again. He's the only one for me, Jolene. <laughs> Cut to interior golden light cantina night. Inside a roadhouse-style joint with longhorn neon signs and a painted mural of old guys in trucker hats with beer mugs, a handful of regulars face in front of the bar where a singer with short red hair perches on a stool with a guitar. I've had this talk with you. My happiness depends on you. And whatever you decide to do, Jolene, 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 please don't take him even though you can, Jolene. Through the lingering cigarette smoke, a waitress brings an iced tea to the booth in the back and sets it in front of Coin, dressed conspicuously casual in a polo and blazer. As she leaves, we see Babcock approaching, also dressed down with a brand new maroon Texas A&M cap, pulled low over his eyes and takes his seat. Don't like the food at your bed and breakfast? This was the first place I saw that's open late. Can I assume a clandestine meeting means you don't want people to know we're talking? It means we both have a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Cooks with strong personalities, I can imagine. So, what are you here to offer? Miss Winfrey and Harpo Productions are prepared to make the same settlement we offered before the jury selection. My clients already rejected that deal, and things have been going well for you lately. And things haven't been going well for you lately, as I'm sure you've noticed. So there's no way in hell we're taking that deal. Babcock leans forward, crosses his arms on the table. I'd like you to take this offer to your clients and make it clear that it's on behalf of Miss Winfrey and her company only. Coin holds on Babcock. He understands. Cut to interior interior law offices of Kevin A. Isern Day. The next morning, Coin sits at the head of the conference table with Lemonian and O'Brien beside him. A few associates stand with in, with Isern at the far end of the table, and everyone watches Engler as he paces, twists his hat in his hands, then finally stops at the window and shakes his head. You know this means they think we're losing. They're, They're losing. Right. They're right. But there's always risk of letting a trial go all the way to verdict. Of course, but she's really hanging him out there to dry like that. She wants us to separate her from Howard Lyman in the suit, since he's the one who actually made the disparaging remarks while on her show. Disparaging? You keep saying that, but that ain't the word for what he did. For Christ's sake, he compared what we do to spreading AIDS. So it's a much easier case to make against him. But she had him on her show, and as an expert. It's her opinion that crashed the market. If we keep them together, it's an all-or-nothing case. O'Brien leans across the table. And if we settle with Oprah? Then we have to sue Lyman separately. But he's just a spokesman. He ain't got the kind of money we're suing for. Is this just about the money? It's about sending a message. But the only way to get people to listen is with a shitload of money. Yeah, we don't have to be martyrs. Angler secures his Stetson on his head, grabs his leather briefcase from a nearby chair, and sets it on the table. I told you we're not doing this for us. He opens the briefcase, picks up two handfuls of unfolded letters and postcards, and drops them in front of O'Brien. I've been getting these for weeks. Ranchers from all over Texas telling me they're proud of what we're doing, that somebody's finally standing up for them. He tosses a few more so they slide across the table into O'Brien's lap. Lemonian picks one up, looks it over, then looks back at Engler. We're not taking the offer. Not a chance in hell. Cut to interior Atterbury Inn, kitchen night. Oprah holds the refrigerator open and stares at the rows of yogurt cups. Nothing looks appetizing. I'm tired of having my name and my integrity and my company's integrity put on trial every day. She closes the door and turns to face Babcock and McGraw seated at the island. But I won't negotiate. 
If they don't want a deal, they don't want a deal. They're playing hardball, but we can always go back to them with another offer. They've made it clear they don't want to settle. As Maya always tells me, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Then we'll keep moving forward with our current strategy. No, that's not working either. She lingers on Babcock for a moment and then turns to McGraw. You know it's not working. No, it's not. Then give us your opinion. I have no idea how much we're paying you, but I'm sure it's a lot, so I might as well get my money's worth. McGraw folds his hands on the countertop and ignores Babcock as he makes the most of having Oprah's ear. This isn't about liberal laws or beef prices or a mad cow. You can forget all that. This is a First Amendment case, freedom of speech. It's about your right to say your piece without it being against the law. And that jury sitting there needs to know that if they vote to silence Oprah Winfrey, if they take away your right to free speech, then it's only a matter of time before someone votes to take away theirs. Hmm. Only a matter of time. Oprah absorbs that for a moment, then turns to Babcock. That makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you? Back to McGraw. So go make that argument to the jury. I can't. What do you mean you can't? What you just said, make that point to the jury. It has to come from you. That's the only way. Oprah steps away, shaking her head. I told you I'm not taking the stand. I moved my entire show to Texas so I could come to court every day and face my accusers, but I will not sit up there and let those lawyers come after me again. McGraw gets up and walks around the island toward Oprah. That jury? They don't know these ranchers. They don't know me or Chip, but they know you. They trust you. If you explain to them that this case, what this case is really about, what's really at stake, they'll listen. That's how you win this. Well, that's how I can lose it, too. So don't. Oprah holds on McGraw for a beat. That's not a smile, is it? Never. Another beat, then Oprah addresses them both. <sighs> I need to think this over. McGraw nods, and Oprah exits and heads back upstairs. What do you think? I think anyone who claims they know what this woman is going to do is a damn fool. He grabs an apple and crunches into a bite. But I think she'll do it. Cut to exterior Amarillo Little Theater Day. The line of fans huddled outside under the frigid gray sky are brought into the theater before the taping. In the parking lot, Davis makes her way through the scurrying PAs and producers toward a long white production trailer. Interior dressing room trailer day. Oprah sits in front of a vanity mirror reading a blue script while her hair and makeup team finishes their work. Davis enters and Oprah sees her reflection. We're doing the interview first and then the pre-tape segment now, right? We made the change. Great, thank you. And are we going to be able to go to the outdoor concert tomorrow with this weather? It's supposed to be sunny. We'll have a canopy on standby, but my hope is we can do it all uncovered. Oprah checks herself in the mirror, looking to her stylist. Good, because if it rains on me after all the work Vicky's put into this, she's not going to be happy. Davis forces a smile. Oprah reads her mood, nods for her stylist to give them a minute. And after they exit, Oprah turns in her chair to face Davis, sitting on the arm of the sofa. If this is about the trial, I really don't want to talk about it. I just want to get through these shows and get back to Chicago as soon as possible. I know, but I, I just I just wanted to say I'm, I'm sorry. don't need to apologize. I should have protected you more. I shouldn't need to be protected. Oprah taps her fingers together, collecting her thoughts. One thing I've gotten really good at over the years is talking to so many people is that I can figure out what they think about me. Whether they like me, they hate me, if they respect me, if they're intimidated by me. And this lawyer, he thinks I'm just a woman on TV who likes being famous. So he thinks I'll do whatever it takes to make sure people watch this show. He's wrong. That's never been us. Like you always say, we're running our own race and making our own show. Which I've done for almost 12 years now. So you don't have to chase ratings. This is the most watched show in the country. But what are we doing with it? We've got everyone's attention. 
So what do we have to say? Oprah holds on Davis for a moment, then gets up and exits. This is immediately greeted by a flurry of staff to accompany her into the theater, leaving Davis alone in the trailer. Cut to exterior Atterbury Inn, backyard night. Lyman stands in the backyard behind the B&B in the grass with a few yards... In the grass a few yards from the wooden patio under a sky blasted with stars. He's staring out the window to a cluster of homes where he can see the smoke from a family barbecue rising above their fence. He can almost smell it from there. I haven't eaten meat in eight years. I've never missed it, but I miss standing around a grill. Lighting the charcoal, getting the smoke in your eyes, everyone offering opinion. There's a whole ritual to it. It's just not the same with a skewer of vegetables. <laughs> Oprah pulls her jacket tighter as she sits in one of the chairs on the patio. You know, I'm a fourth-generation cattle rancher. <laughs> fourth generation? No, I didn't realize that. Up in Montana. Grew up around cows, studied farming in college, and spent 20 years on a feedlot. So does this feel like a familiar place to you, then? That's what gets me about this whole thing, to be honest. I'm one of them. But they see you as the enemy. I'm trying to help them, because this won't last. It, it can't. It's inhumane. It takes too many resources. It's not safe. I'm trying to warn them so they have a chance to change. Change is hard. That's why people resist it so much. Oprah nods, and Lyman slowly walks back to the patio. I know you've got a lot riding on this case, but I do too. With a guilty verdict, the jury could easily take every penny I have. He stops by Oprah's chair, looking through the sliding glass door at Babcock and the other lawyers busily prepping for the next day in court. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. We're in this together, and we're right. That has, that has, to, cor- that has to count for something. Lyman goes inside. Oprah leans back, facing the expansive darkness, the smoke in the distance. Cut to interior, Atterbury Inn, penthouse room night. Oprah sits up in bed, wearing pajamas, trying to read a book. She blinks to focus, turns back a page, finally giving up and setting the book down in her lap. Oprah gets up to answer. Thought I'd see what all the fuss was about. Oprah screams and hugs Gail, who holds on to her novelty cowboy hat. And look who I brought with me. Gail steps aside to let Maya Angelou, 69, powder blue blazer, scarf wrapped on her head, a profoundly grounded and empathetic soul, enter the room. Maya. Oprah gives Angelou a deep hug, and Gail wanders around the room, admiring. Then she spots a plate of half-eaten something on a white tablecloth table. What's that over there? Oprah turns to look, makes a face at Gail. It's pie. I'm eating pie. It's been the most stressful month of my life. I think I'm allowed to have some damn pie if I won't. A beat as Gail and Angelou are stunned by the outburst. I was just going to ask if you had any for me. Gail laughs as she takes a bite out of the pie for herself, and Oprah pulls out a chair for Maya. <laughs> I'm sorry. Phil warned me it would be challenging. Your consultant? He told me they call it a, a trial for a reason. Oh, that's good. He has some good things to say. What's he saying now? He wants me to testify. Don't you want to defend yourself? No, not like this. It's humiliating. Oprah sits across from Angelo, who takes her hand. If you're already practicing humility, then you can't be humiliated by others. You don't think I'm humble? Do you think this trial has been a humbling experience? Very much so. Then what does that mean? Oprah leans back, smiling despite herself. Always putting things into perspective. She gives tough love. If you want comfort, stick to the pie. (laughs) Gail finishes the dessert, then goes to sit on the edge of the bed. Angelo keeps her eyes on Oprah. You look like you're in pain. I am. I'm hurt. I feel betrayed. By whom? By this whole situation. I worked hard to build a company to call my own, so I wouldn't be beholden to any boss except myself. 
And I've tried to use that position to give people opportunities so they wouldn't have to struggle the same way I did. I know I'm not perfect, and there's still work to be done, but I've done that much. And you feel like you're being punished for it? I feel like I'm not in control. I bought my studio and started Harpo so that I would have control of my show and my life. But I can't control what's going on in that courtroom. I can't stop those men from saying whatever they want about me. You can't worry about what the, those men are saying. Those dumb cowboys. <laughs> I, know you, I know you can't call them that, so I will. What they're saying isn't about you, it's about them. They're expressing their own insecurities, their own problems. But you're not responsible for them. You're only responsible for yourself. Amen, Miss Maya. Don't you think you should have someone follow, follow her around and just to say amen? <laughs> Oprah smiles and rolls her eyes. Angelo takes her hand again, tender but serious. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid that whatever I say will be taken out of context and used as a weapon against me. That's what's happening here. I gave my opinion, and now I'm being taken to court for it. They're telling me what I can and can't say. And if they're allowed to do that, then what else get, Then who else gets to? The response to being silenced, silenced is not to stay silent. Say what's in your heart. Show people who you really are and trust them to see you. Amen, amen, amen. Gail gets up from her bed. Show those cowboys you picked a fight with the wrong woman. She puts, a, she puts her pink cowboy hat on Oprah's head, laughing infectiously so that Oprah and even Angelo can't help but join in, too. Cut to interior Chevy Suburban, moving day. Oprah stares silently out the tinted window as the crowds of waiting onlookers grow in number as they approach the courthouse, waving, holding signs, still dressed as cows. Exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. A TV news reporter stands across the street from the courthouse holding a microphone and speaking to camera. On the fourth week of her trial after endless speculation, Oprah will be taking the stand in defense of the lawsuit against her. Behind the reporter, a black SUV stops at the curb. The driver opens the back door for Oprah, who steps out amidst flashing cameras and clamoring fans. She turns and helps Angelou from the car. Arm in arm, the two women walk up the steps and enter the courthouse. Interior courtroom day. Oprah sits poised on the witness stand. She looks right at the jury while Babcock stands off to the side. One of the best parts of my job is that I have the opportunity to talk to people. I love talking with people. I love to find out about things and learn with them. That's my responsibility as a host, and I take it very seriously. A beat, then she turns back to Babcock. Thank you, Miss Winfrey. He nods and heads back to the defense table. Coyne takes his time getting up from his chair. Oprah shifts in her seat, uncomfortable by the silence. And finally, Coyne neatly buttons his jacket and faces her. What scientific basis did you have for making the claims you did on your show? No scientific basis, just common sense. Common sense? So, so you're not an authority on feeding cows? I never said I was. But people trust you. When you recommend a book, it goes straight to the top of the bestseller list. Whenever you endorse a product, it immediately becomes popular. I believe they call it the Oprah effect. I would say that I have influence, when not you, authority. When you say something, people listen. So when you told your audience you would never eat beef... I said I'd never have another burger. Oh, I stand corrected. How many Emmy Awards have you won, Miss Winfrey? Thirteen. I would say that many awards gives you some authority... It gives me a very nice-looking bookshelf. Oprah smiles at the jury, and a few of them laugh. 
Did people watch your show for information or entertainment? People watch my show for a lot of different reasons. Would you call yourself an entertainer or a journalist? I'm a communicator. You communicate with a lot of people, Miss Winfrey. I heard 14 million Americans watch your show every day. Does that sound right? No, I've heard numbers like that, yes. <sighs> Come on, you must know your own ratings. I really don't pay attention to them. I find that very hard to believe. Babcock stands up. This is argumentative, Your Honor. My <laughs> client has answered the question. Robinson takes a considered breath. You may ask a follow-up. Coin nods a thank you, then turns back to Oprah. As he questions her, he slowly steps closer to the witness stand. I find it hard to believe you don't check your ratings, because your show makes money based on the advertising rates, correct? My show makes money from syndication fees, actually. Broadcasters pay us, and they sell the advertising on their own. But you can charge higher fees if your show gets higher ratings. Well, those contracts are long. Episode-to-episode ratings don't matter to me one bit. You wouldn't have a show if nobody watched it, so you must care what your viewership is. I don't make my show just to get viewers. This isn't Jerry Springer you're talking to, okay? Calling your episode Dangerous Foods sounds sensationalist. I am not a sensationalist. You don't try to scare people? I don't make those kinds of shows. You don't care about lying? Of course I do. Unless it's to get ratings, of course. Oprah turns away. Coins so close now, practically leaning over the banister that he's spitting on her. Babcock jumps to his feet. Objection! Your Honor, counsel is out of line. Oprah wipes her cheeks, and Robinson shakes her head. He's asking tough questions, and I expect your client to answer. Your Honor... Objection has been overruled. This is... Should I hold you in content? A beat. Silence in the court. Babcock collects himself. It's been a long morning, Your Honor. I would please ask for a recess. Robinson looks over to the clock mounted on the wall. We could all use a bathroom break. 20 minutes, then we start back again. On time. From the judge's gavel bang, we cut to interior courthouse day. Oprah paces inside a vacant office. Lyman Babcock and the other attorneys confer out in the hallway. After a moment, McGraw knocks on the door and he enters. How's it going? How's it going? You saw me up there, you tell me. It's not going well. Thank you for that. You know it's a nice job you have, charging a lot of money to tell people what they already know. Not that different from being a psychiatrist. Is this therapy now? Would that help? What would help is if we'd settled this case before it went to trial. You can't live in the past. Oprah looks out the window into the hall toward Babcock. This was a bad idea. I shouldn't have let you talk me into being on that witness stand. Did you see that lawyer? He spit on me. You were dodging his question. Oh, so it's my fault. He doesn't have to be so aggressive, but they're being defensive up there. Because he's trying to trap me. Ignore him. How? McGraw leans against the desk and puts his hands together. This isn't your TV show. You don't have to put on an act. I'm not acting. I'm a successful businesswoman and a responsible television host. Yes, I- yes, you're all those things, but you're, on- you're also a woman. Just a regular person like everyone on that jury, and they need to see that. The only person I can be is myself. If you don't like what I'm saying up there, I'm sorry, but that's me. That's you, the host. That's you, the businesswoman. That's you as the queen of television, who everyone invites into their living rooms on weekday afternoons. And who's it supposed to be? Just you. Oprah holds on McGraw, shaking her head slightly. You are so frustrating sometimes. Should be all the time, or I'm not doing my job right. (laughs) He gets up off the desk and opens the office door for her. Interior courtroom day. Oprah slowly crosses the front of the courtroom to take her place on the witness stand. The clerk approaches and raises his right hand, and Oprah does the same. Do you solemnly swear to affirm that the testimony you are about to give in this case now on this trial is is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? As Oprah listens, we can see Gail and Angelou watching in the gallery, and McGraw leaning against the railing behind Babcock's team. 
I do, so help me God. Finally, the clerk leaves, and Oprah has a seat. Coyne stands at the plaintiff table, looking down at his notes. Before we took a break, Miss Winfrey, we were talking about whether or not you consider yourself an authority. Which I do not. But you told us that you have influence over your audience. I may have some. You have the influence to move markets, Miss Winfrey. If I had that kind of power, I'd go on the air and heal people. I wouldn't use it to talk them out of eating beef. But that's what you did with this episode. You failed to check the credentials of your supposed expert, and you forced your staff to make a biased edit. You fabricated the entire thing. Oprah takes a calming breath with a glance to Angelo in the seats. Then she leans close to the microphone. My show has been built around people. Just regular people who have a story to tell. And the more sensational their story, the higher your ratings. I object to the term sensational. I have a provi- I provide a forum for people to express their opinions. This is the United States of America. We are allowed to do this in the United States of America. Coin is stunned for a moment, along with the rest of the courtroom. Some in the jury nod, get restless in their seats, and Coin refers back to his notes. I understand how you feel. I don't believe you do, Mr. Coin. I am a black woman. In America, and I have gotten where I have by believing in a power greater than myself. I come from a people who have struggled and died in order to have a voice in this country, and I refuse to be muzzled. Coin nods, tight-lipped, and looks to the judge. Your Honor, could you please instruct the witness to only answer the questions asked? Babcock rises from his chair. My client should be allowed to defend herself. What are we doing here otherwise? That is an excellent point. And I would appreciate not being told what instructions to give in my courtroom. Miss Winfrey, you may continue with your response to Mr. Coyne. Thank you, Your Honor. She looks down for a moment, then gives a look toward McGraw. He nods encouragingly, and Oprah turns toward the jury. I grew up poor. First at my grandmother's in Mississippi, in a home with no indoor plumbing. Then I went to live with my mom in inner city Milwaukee, but I barely saw her because she worked so much. And I was raped. Several times by family who was supposed to be raising me. When I was 14, I gave birth prematurely, and my son did not survive. Oprah reaches for a tissue, steadies herself, and in the gallery, Gail squeezes Angelo's hands. In high school, the other students would remind me just how black and just how poor I was. My mother cleaned their houses, but I managed to get myself into Tennessee, Tennessee State University, and I became the first female news anchor in Nashville. When I took over at AM Chicago, there weren't any other black, overweight women hosting television. But we became the highest-rated show in the city. She turns back toward Coyne and speaks directly into the microphone. I'd had to fight my entire life against poverty, abuse, racism, sexism. It's completely improbable that someone with my background would be as blessed as I am today. But I'm still fighting every single day. That's why I'm in this courtroom right now. To defend my name, to defend my right to speak my truth in the face of any power who wishes that I would just stay quiet and stay out of the way. I have the voice now that I didn't when I was a little girl, when no one would believe that was being done to me. I'm the voice for women today who don't feel safe to speak because I know what it's, I know what it's like to hurt like that. So I'm here, Mr. Coyne. To make sure I'm heard, to make sure they're heard, and to let everyone know that we cannot be silenced. Oprah sits back in her seat, her eyes pointedly fixed on Coin. He glances at the jury, clearly hanging on Oprah's every word, then retreats back to his table. That's all, Your Honor. 
As Coin takes his seat, Gail, tears in her eyes, points and smiles at her friend, and Oprah finally exhales. Cut two, exterior law offices of Kevin A. Isern Day. Isern holds the front door for a couple of associates carrying boxes out to a car backed into a parking spot with its trunk open. Interior, law office of Kevin A. Isern Day. Inside, Isern squeezes past more associates hauling boxes and binders out of the office as he makes his way down the hallway toward the conference room. What the hell happened in there? The former lawsuit HQ has mostly been cleared out, leaving plenty of space for the plaintiffs to stew. Angler retrieves the hat he threw from the ground as Coyne leans against a window at the far side of the room. She never refuted editing the footage or booking biased guests, and she can't refute what she said. The facts are still on our side, gentlemen. The facts aren't going to matter. How could you let her go on like that? I didn't have a choice, and the jury isn't going to buy her clearly theatrical testimony. They were eating up every goddamn word she was saying. They're still on our side. O'Brien sits up, fists on the table. We've lost her. We've lost this whole fucking town, Paul. Beside him, Lamunian shakes his head. It's brought nothing but negative attention on us. To cattle feeders, to our state. Don't you be so dramatic, too. It's the truth. I think Texas still supports us. Have you noticed that Rick Perry hasn't returned any of your phone calls lately? Why do you think that is? Angler considers, slides his Stetson back on. I heard he's making a run at Lieutenant Governor. He doesn't want any of our stink on him. My neighbors won't even talk to me anymore. We're doing this for them. Well, they wish we hadn't. We're pariahs. That woman took money from us. You know as well as I do that the market was was already dropping. Folks were, were worried. She said that they were already thinking. Angler chews on his words, finally throwing his hands up. What do you want? We can't go back, so it's up to the it's up to that jury now. He sits down, refusing to look at O'Brien or Lamagna. We can always appeal the verdict. How much is this going to cost us? This is as far as I go. Lamagna gets up and walks out of the office. O'Brien follows. Angler leans back in his seat, puts his boots up on the table, and pulls his hat down over his eyes. Cut two. Exterior Atterbury Inn, backyard night. Oprah walks across the back lawn, wrapped in a scarf and heavily wool coat. Only a handful of lights glow in the distance. Her two cocker spaniels sniff around the grass nearby, and behind her, McGraw steps off the porch, wearing a thick coat himself, and approaches. How'd I do? You have a way of connecting with people like I've never seen before. That's my job. But it's not work, is it? Comes naturally. You enjoy it. I wouldn't be on television for as long as I have if I didn't love it. Back in that courtroom, was that you doing what you love? I haven't loved any part of this. Meeting you has been good, but outside of that... She smiles and buries her hands in her coat pockets. Sorry it took so long for me to finally listen to you. You've got a lot of people in your ear. Some of them are pretty smart, too. But I came around in the end. You did? Turns out you're good at what you do. Who'd have thought? All the advice you give, these little sayings of yours. You should write a book. I'll get right on that. He smirks and Oprah claps her hands together. Ha! <laughs> See, I knew I could get you to smile. Oh, I figure I can let loose now that closing arguments are finished. And now we wait. I know it's making you anxious, but if it's any con- consolation, know that you've done all you can to win this case. Mostly because you've done a nice job taking my notes and putting them to work. Thank you, but that doesn't entirely feel like a compliment. (laughs) I asked you to perform a certain way in front of the jury, and you did it. You told me to be myself. You still think that was a performance? I think it was another side of you. A painful side. One that you don't talk about a lot, but you've shown it to people before. It's my story. It's my truth. I know it is. But it's not the whole truth, is it? You're saving something in the tank. McGraw blows into his hands, grits his teeth in the cold. 
I'm just talking into my ass now. And I'm off the clock, so you definitely don't have to listen to me anymore. <laughs> he heads back toward the bed and breakfast. I'll see you tomorrow. Apparently, I've got a book to start writing. As McGraw closes in, as McGar, as McGraw goes inside and closes the sliding door behind him, Oprah takes a seat on the patio, exhausted. Fade to black. Over black, we hear the domineering twang of a West Texas AM radio host. Here's a woman who shows up in an Amarillo with a private jet and her entourage. Cameras following her everywhere. Couldn't be any more big city media elite. Fade in. Interior F-350 pickup truck morning. The sun rises behind the feed trailers, making their rounds, filling troughs. Angler sits in his truck listening to the morning radio show. But the longer she's here, the more folks have gotten to know her. And from her own testimony in court yesterday, I have to say this is about as self-made an individual as you're going to meet. You want to see the American dream? She's it. She is. Doesn't Oprah Winfrey have the kind of heart and perseverance that we used to look for in the great Texas men of the past? The men that tamed the wild frontier? The men who could accomplish anything? Men who didn't need lawyers to help them earn a living? Angler smashes the knob to turn the radio off. He stares out the windshield, fingers digging into the steering wheel. Then he hits the radio again and again and again, the volume dipping in and out until Angler knocks the knob from the radio and cracks the glass on the dial. Then... He sits in silence, still, watching the cows meander around their crowded pens. Cut to interior flower shop day. A florist ties a ribbon around a vase of yellow roses. Mayor Seliger writes on the card, to Oprah. His wife, Nancy, approaches the counter. I thought you told your staff not to send her flowers. (sighs) These are roses. Nancy smiles as Seliger hands her the pen to sign. I can't believe this trial's finally ending. No matter what happens, this town's gonna miss her. Nancy nods in agreement, and Seliger tucks the card into the bouquet as we match cut to interior Atterbury living room night, the vase of roses sitting on the coffee table. A blue index card dropped inside of it, then another, then a couple of green cards, some pink and yellow ones. Oprah pulls a card from the corkboard, reads the segment pitch, and then tosses it to the floor behind her. QVC makeup tips. Confronting your cheating spouse, celebrity decorators, one-night stands, parents of child actors, fitting into your old jeans... Looks like we need new cards. Davis gathers a few, stacks them neatly on the table. Vatican follows behind her, takes a seat on the couch. Oprah looks over the now mostly empty corkboard. We need new ideas. These Texas shows have, <clears throat> have been strong because they're held together thematically. Maybe we need a theme going into the rest of the year. No, not a theme. We need a purpose. Bakatan and Davis exchange uneasy glances as Oprah slowly turns back away from the board. When I was up there on the stand, I was accused of making sensational shows, of chasing ratings. I knew that wasn't the case. I'm not Springer or Geraldo or Maury. I know that. But I couldn't articulate exactly what makes me different. Ricky Lake could make this episode. Sally Jesse could do this one. But not like you. The style would be different, but the point of the show would be the same. I don't want to do that anymore. A quiet beat. Bakatin leans forward. Are you leaving the show? Oprah paces in front of Bakatin and Davis, who watch with growing concern. On my very first episode, I said that I wanted my show to allow people to understand the power they have to change their own lives. But I haven't been doing that. I got lost. So now it's time... I truly delivered on that promise. When we get back to Chicago, I want an entirely new set of shows. With purpose. That means you need to feel passionate about every single idea you pitch. Even want, each one needs to be presented with intention. Intention. This ordeal here in Texas, it's changed my life. I'm different moving forward. I want our shows to be that for people. I want to make change. I want to make change. 
I want to make change your life television. Backerton shakes her head, concerning, concern now turning to confusion. I'm not sure I know what that means. Pitch me the shows, and I'll tell you. Can we at least wait until the end of the season? I'm not waiting. Re- reformatting the show on the fly like this... Ratings could slip. We'll spook King World for sure. I don't care. I really don't care. Oprah sits across from them. I could lose this case. I could get sued by someone else. My distributor could drop me. There are a lot of different ways I could have this show taken from me. So if I'm ever going to lose it, I want it to be while I'm making the show I want. A show I'm proud of. A show we can be proud of. The two producers hold on the conviction in Oprah's eyes, smiles finally spreading on their faces, and we cut to exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. The usual gathering of press and fans outside the court. Across the street, a local reporter gives an update. Oprah and her team have been summoned back to the courthouse today, where the jury is expected to deliver its verdict and draw this five-week trial to a close. Interior courtroom day. The bailiff takes an envelope from the jury foreperson, crosses the room, and hands it to Judge Robinson. Angler watches the judge's reaction as she reads, but she reveals nothing. Lamunian and O'Brien ignore Angler, arms crossed, arms crossed, staring straight ahead. Stedman sits with Gail and Angelou, arms linked, sitting in the gallery. Davis and Bakatan sit nearby, and McGraw sits behind the defense table, scanning the jury. Oprah watches as the bailiff returns the envelope to the foreperson, and Lyman puts a hand on her arm, offering an encouraging nod. Has the jury reached a verdict? The foreperson stands. Well, yes, Yana. Will the parties please rise? Coin, Angler, and the plaintiff's table get to their feet as do Babcock, Oprah, and the defense's table. Judge Robinson reads from a document. In the case of Texas Beef Group, the plaintiffs against Oprah Winfrey, Harpo Productions Incorporated, and Howard Lyman, the defendants alleging alleging causes of action for false disparagement of perishable food products in violation of the Texas Civil Practice and Remedies Code, Sanction 96002. Looking to the jury... How do you find? The foreperson takes the paper from the envelope, unfolds the verdict, and... Cut to exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. Police cars and officers block traffic in front of the courthouse. A black SUV is parked near the curb, and the bottom of the entrance steps is a podium with dozens of microphones. Reporters, cameras, fans, all waiting in near silence. A rustling through the crowd. Cameras are lifted onto shoulders, and anchors jockey for position. Cops hold people away from the steps. The courtroom doors open. Two security guards step outside. Then Babcock, head down, squinting at the sudden sunlight. He turns to help Oprah, wearing her sunglasses, out onto the top of the steps. She looks at the crowd and then raises her hands. Yes! Cheers and applause fill the block. Oprah takes off her sunglasses and throws a fist into the air. Yes, we did it! She puts... She puts an arm around Babcock as they descend the stairs together. McGraw follows behind, even he smiles too. And Oprah arrives at the podium, at home in front of all the cameras crowding in front of her. First, I want to say that free speech not only lives, it rocks! The crowd screams in enthusiasm with her. So if I ever took free speech for granted, I won't do it again. Cut to interior Atterbury Inn living room day. Assistants and staff carry luggage down from the upstairs bedrooms, and in the dining room, Babcock and his team pack up their remaining documents into boxes. In a way, I appreciate this lawsuit because it's reminded me why I do what I do. Oprah stands in the living room, holding one of her dogs, watching the blank corkboard get rolled away. Davis and Bakatin approach, carrying stacks of fresh white index cards. Oprah nods. Let's get back to work. It's difficult to tell people things they don't want to hear, but but that they need to hear. Cut to exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. At the podium, Oprah looks to Stedman, Galen, Angelou standing behind her, and McGraw at her side. I've had people do that for me, 
and I'm always grateful for it. Cut to exterior City Hall day. A handful of city employees stand in front of City Hall watching Oprah's caravan of Suburbans drive by. Mayor Seliger steps outside, and they quickly scatter back into the building. Seliger lights a cigarette as the SUVs round the corner and disappear from view. Cut to exterior J.M. Jones Federal Building day. Angler stands at the podium now with a smaller group of reporters and cameras gathered in front. Obviously, the verdict didn't go the way we'd hoped. Cut to Atterbury Inn Day. The black cars file out in the driveway. McGraw steps outside just in time for a small wave to Oprah's SUV as it pulls out onto the street. But I believe the fight was worthwhile in the end. Cut to J.M. Jones Federal Building Day. Coyne puts a supportive hand on Angler's shoulder. We made an emphatic point that U.S. beef is safe. Not much reaction from those nearby. Behind Angler, more people exit the courthouse at the top of the stairs, and two women raise their hands, cheering. Woo! Oprah! Down the way, a city reporter sweeps the sidewalk with a push broom, collecting a couple of buttons with Oprah's cross-through face, then piles of discarded We Love Oprah posters and a crumpled cow costume. Cut to interior law offices of Kevin A. Isern Day. Isern walks the empty hall, past cleaned offices, into the conference room, devoid of papers and boxes. Coin closes his briefcase, shakes Isern's hand, and exits, leaving him alone in the suddenly vacant building. Cut to exterior cactus feeders dusk. Angler stands outside the mostly empty feeding troughs and reaches through the fence to pet a cow's head as the red sun sinks in the sky. Cut to exterior Amarillo Airport tarmac dusk. Two cocker spaniels race up the stairs into a parked Gulf Stream. Oprah follows behind, wearing her sunglasses, and stops at the top. She looks out at the city lights starting to glow in the distance. No cheering fans pushing up against the gate. For once, it's quiet for a moment. She looks down at one of her dogs sitting at her feet. Let's go home. Then Oprah steps inside a plane as a crew member folds up the stairs and closes the door. We hear the opening strains of a classic country tune. Amarillo by morning, up by San Antone. Everything that I got is just what I've got on. The plane rises, leaving the runway far behind. When that sun is high in that Texas sky, I'll be bucking at the country fair. Amarillo in the morning, Amarillo, I'll be there. Fade out. Right. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break, and after, we're going to come back with our brilliant writer, Dan Williams, for an exclusive interview, so stay tuned. All right, guys, we're back on the Unproduced Table Read. We have Dan Williams in studio, who wrote the script we just read. Dan is a USC graduate from their BFA screenwriting program. He's worked at WME, ABC, Sony, NBC Universals in the uh, television development departments. He also wrote and produced a Hulu series called Asylum, and just recently wrote a book about developing TV web series online. So we're going to talk all about that. Dan, thank you for being here once again. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. Honored to have you. Um, I mean this in the most respectful way, but if someone were to hear this script only, they might not guess you'd be the person who wrote it. <laughs> True. Can you talk about why why this story? Yeah, um, I came across an article in Texas Monthly that was written not long after the trial wrapped, and everything that I was reading, I was like, there's no way that's true. There's no way that happened. And the more I dug into it, there was just so many things like that. You know, Dr. Phil showing up. Basically, every crazy thing that happens in the script, and you're like, no, that, there's no way that happened. That actually happened, and some stuff I even kind of toned down because it was kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just such a captivating story like that. I felt like I had to, to dive into it. And I grew up in Texas, so I felt comfortable writing Amarillo, writing the cattle ranchers, writing those characters. Mm-hmm. 
and I grew up with Oprah, you know, yeah. like a lot of people. I watched Oprah every afternoon after school, you know? So yeah. I, I just felt like that was such a fun voice to kind of jump into. Did she really quote the color purple on her statement? Yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. I, I, I couldn't help but smirk as I was saying it. I was like, oh my God, yeah, that is the color, she's, <laughs> the color yeah. purple. She's very theatrical like that for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I talked to, so Judge Robinson is still practicing in wow. Amarillo, and so I talked to her clerk, and I was able How to get... How old is Judge Robinson? Then? She's like 91 now. Damn. Yeah, oh, wow. I know. Um... I know she's old even then. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I got some of the transcripts, and basically Oprah's sort of monologue at the end there, she said, you know, oh. that all happened. So let's go through all of your research, because I want to yeah. hear about, like, obviously when writing a biopic, you're taking on a true story. So, like, let's start first by talking about research. So you mm-hmm. talked to Judge Robinson, you went through transcripts. Mm-hmm. What else did you do to, like, really make sure that this thing was working as it should be? Sure. So there's, a like I said, there's a great Texas Monthly article that was sort of my jumping off point. Um, I read the biographies about Oprah, read other articles that were written around that time. Uh, you can't find footage of the actual episode. It's been, no one has seen oh, it since wow. it aired, basically. Oh, wow. um, but you can find episodes of her, like Texas episodes, where she like couldn't talk about the trial, and mm-hmm. she was doing these roundabout things, like, I can't tell you all why I'm here. Mm-hmm. That really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could watch that to kind of get her voice at the time, because it was also a time where she went from doing this to doing the change your life type of Oprah that we know, the empowering, spiritual kind of Oprah that we know now, Mm -hmm. started right after this trial, before she was sort of like the other talk show host at the time. Hmm. Obviously the biggest game in town, but very similar to the Ricky Lakes and stuff. That's Allie Jesse right there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because when I think of Oprah now, I think of her more as like our spiritual leader. Totally. Yeah. And this was all pre that. This is where that started. This is where she met Dr. Phil. So she got people like Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, people like that to come into her circle and to mm. be reoccurring guests on the show. Mm-hmm. That all started here. Yeah. I feel like you probably recognized that this was a very a, a moment of precipice, right? And right. that's I think you are kind of zeroing in on something important, which is oftentimes the best biopics work because they're not about a person's whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, can you? I'm assuming you sort of deliberately chose to cover a small window of her life, and Absolutely. I'd love to hear you like elaborate on that choice a little bit. Yeah, because like you said, there's just too much to do, right. and because I didn't. Whenever you do a biopic, it's really tough because you don't want to speak for that person exactly. You know, like they have their own life, they have their own point of view. But this is one of those instances where what Oprah said about herself is in the record. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm not really making a lot of it up. I'm filling in a lot of blanks and stuff like that and putting it in order for people. But this is how she felt. This is how she expressed herself. And so I felt like that was would do her the, the most justice, mm-hmm. you know. And she, she talked about her biography, talked about how she came up, talked about the things in her life that were keeping her down, the, the things that she had to fight against and was still fighting right. uh, for during the trial. So I felt like, you know, sort of like the social network. Like, you could have done a, a bigger story about Facebook, but they really narrowed into, like, just this trial, just this litigation mm-hmm. yeah. as a way into that story, you know? Aaron Sorkin's pretty good at that because yeah. Steve Jobs was the same way. I don't know if exactly. you saw that, yeah. but that was an example of... That movie plays out in real time, and mm. it's three separate moments of his life, and each moment is almost really just one long scene, but a great writer can really give you the full picture of someone mm-hmm. while still only giving us a microcosm of their life. Right. I think you've done that really well in this script. Oh, thank you. Can, I would be nervous to, like, write Oprah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I yeah. had a lot of fun, I gotta, I gotta admit, you know, because, like I said, there were these touchstone um, quotes that you could pull to sort of get her voice, and yeah. it's one of those things that... Once you start writing, I don't know, I had a lot of fun with it. It was one of the, she was, she became a character to me. Like, mm-hmm. you would take a character, like, I don't know, if you're writing for Luke Skywalker or Batman or someone that's, like, been in your life for a long time. Yeah. You, I could sort of divorce it from the, the real woman and write to the persona that I've seen on, you know, on TV so much. 
Yeah, the thing I'd be nervous about, though, or that I would assume would be a challenge, was you have to write public opera versus private yeah. opera. So yeah, can that you, was fun. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I think that was the where I took the most liberties was her conversations with Gail, with Maya. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew those conversations were taking place. She talked about them. Uh, she did walk into the courtroom with Maya Angelou wow. on her arm. <laughs> so I knew that they were talking to each other, and she quotes Maya all the time. So it was just a matter of sort of figuring out what they were talking about, what her inner um, thoughts were. And I don't know. I, like I said, I, that's, you're right. That's, that's where you take the most liberties and stuff. But I felt pretty comfortable doing it, I guess. Yeah. How did you feel knowing you had to read Oprah? <laughs> um, I was like, I, I can't do like a perfect like voice imitation of, oh, imitation of yeah. Oprah. But I was like, but I can do is try and just get like like the way she like the way she presents her hel- herself in the presence. And I did play with like the private Oprah versus the public Oprah. Mm-hmm. So the private Oprah, I would imagine private Oprah is not always the most pleasant she's running a business and so she's probably a lot more serious and so whenever I would do public opera I'd always read it while smiling Mm -hmm. because that's kind of what she does like you see everything with a smile yeah you know and she's also um has been a journalist and uh and and worked in the news so there is that kind of seriousness to her as well so yeah I mean all I could do is like I just gotta drop my voice low. Don't sound like a valley girl like I do majority of the time, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah, yeah, she's she's tough, and it was actually great because right as she was doing her sort of last season of her show, they did a lot of behind the scenes stuff where mm-hmm. they would uh, bring cameras into her meetings with her producers and stuff. And the producers that are in this movie are still with her. Mm-hmm. Wow! So I got to see what you know those interactions were like. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you'll never really know because there's still a camera there. Yeah. But she's definitely a different person in those meetings than she is, you know, yeah. when she's hosting the show. Hmm. And she's tough, you know. She she really is like, come to me, be passionate about it. You really need to believe in the show that you're pitching. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it, you know. Yeah, I've heard the same thing about like Ellen. Ellen behind the scenes is a totally different person than Ellen in front. And right. That makes sense because when you get to, especially as a woman, when you get to that level of success where um, people are. Um, you're basically running people's jobs and people are looking to you for guidance. I, you know, you already deal with enough crap just by the fact that you're a woman in that in that position. So you have to kind of, like, reinforce it a lot. And, I, and just coming from, like, where Oprah's come from and even where Ellen's come from, I could see them being a lot more stern behind, you know, closed doors. So, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you nailed that. I, I want to talk to you about like the art of the courtroom drama because really for as many episodes we've done of this show we haven't really done a bona fide courtroom yeah. feature yet even though there's so many mm-hmm. um, what do you think because there's so many sometimes you watch a courtroom drama and it feels like it can kind of fall into cliche and then sometimes they feel fresh so I want to talk about that and sort of how you managed to make this structure feel fresh sure I mean it was really tough because I didn't want to get too technical with it but there has to be beginning, middle, and end of mm-hmm. the trial. There has to be some sort of point that you're getting to. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Dr. Phil kind of phrased it the best where he was saying this is a free speech argument. You know, they're going to make it about libel and all this kind of um, technical things. But really, it's about them trying to tell you what you can and cannot say. And mm-hmm. people get that. And it took Oprah a while to get there. Mm-hmm. And I think I tried to make that the sort of crux of her journey was getting to that point where she could open up. She had to open up. She couldn't be the TV Oprah. Mm-hmm. She had to reveal, reveal to people that, like, this is me. I'm trying to say this thing, and these people are trying to stop me. And they could stop you, too. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so trying to move from the veggie libel law of it all to this uh, was, was the goal for the courtroom. 
I also love how you sprinkle in details of just America's shifting perspectives around food. Yeah. Like, just the small details, like, oh, people are calling it veganism. Yeah, that's a great, (laughs) great line there. Um, Did you deliberately sort of try to put time-stamped markers in to really give us a picture of that time? Yeah, well, it was funny. As I got into the research, I didn't even realize that it was that big a deal. You know, like, we have these, you know, the term vegan, I don't know, I've just grown up with for so long. Yeah. You sort of forget that there was a time when that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm but, from Texas as well. Oh, okay, and yeah. I'm from Houston, and so I remember when Oprah, I wasn't living there at the time, but my dad's still there, and I remember when she came down, mm-hmm. and um, there was that kind of question, and even, like, circa... 2012, I went there for South by Southwest, and I was like, "Oh, are you, are you vegan in South by Southwest? Are you dying right now?" And they're like, right. "Yes." <laughs> so, so I was like, "Yeah." So, especially in Texas, there is that kind of weirdness around uh, people who don't eat meat because it's yeah. it's just so much a part of the culture. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a big deal. You really had to go out of your way. There wasn't any. There weren't any restaurants that were mm-hmm. catering towards you. You know, you were yeah. a, a pariah. <laughs> What were some of your biggest discoveries or surprises that you kind of encountered when doing all this research and writing this script? I was just surprised all the, the whole way through, to be honest with you. you yeah. That's that's what drew me to it initially. But I think the the sort of uh, Dr. Phil of it all, like how he came to be like coming in as a consultant and just the bond that he formed with Oprah. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that, you know, obviously she brought him in and supported his show and all that kind of stuff. But I think this was really, like, they, they really bonded. There's a real, like, deep friendship and respect for each other that I'm not sure I understood when I got into it, you know? Like, he, he saved her. This was a big deal. She could have lost millions of dollars. Like, this this was a, a much bigger trial than I think she wanted to admit to herself off the bat. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who got her to wake up, you know? Yeah. That, that scene in her office where he says, it's not my, my ass on the line. Mm-hmm. He said that. That's a real, like, quote from, from Phil, wow. you know, telling her, like, to Oprah. Like, yeah. Yeah. wake up, Oprah. He says that to Oprah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have this brilliant ability throughout the script that I think is so necessary in, in biopics and kind of in movies that don't really focus around, like, a fantastic moment. It's just kind of like a slice of life, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, where you do this thing where it's like they cheers and then they smile and cut to this. And you do that a lot throughout the script. Um, but it's brilliant because it keeps it incredibly compelling. And as a reader and as an actor and as a viewer, when those moments happen, you kind of like, you and your friends kind of smile and you're mm-hmm. like, what's well, coming next? Yeah. Uh, how did you inject those so um, so well, I guess? Like, did you find moments when you were writing it originally where you're like, maybe this is kind of dragging or it's a little slow or kind of boring? Because like that Angelou, Gale, and Oprah scene is, is incredible. It's so well written. Oh, it's so poignant. And then at the end of it, they all like laugh together. And even right. Angelou laughs, which is one of those things where you're like, yeah, they're having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's happening next? Yeah. You know, so right like now. how did you inject those so seamlessly? Oh, thank you. Um, I, you know, I, I tried to do stark juxtapositions between the scenes. You know, you would have a scene where um, – like Kevin uh, Iser and the uh, uh, the attorney would be like, oh, you know, people in Amarillo aren't going to respond to this. They're not going to care about the cameras and stuff. And then people are cheering outside. Right. You know, yeah. like I tried to do moments like that, uh, just so you, you could sort of see that along the way. But really, when I write something like this, I just do a ton of research before I put any outline together, mm-hmm. any pen to paper, and I'm just highlighting things like this has to be in the script somewhere. This mm-hmm. beat this moment, mm-hmm. this thing that this person said, this crazy detail, the people playing kazoos outside, yeah, you know, things great. like that. I was like, that has to go in there. So, so, that, so that I'm just like sort of bursting at the seams when I actually start 
outline it and write good, it, you know. Good advice. Yeah, that's such an interesting point to start every scene thinking of juxtaposition by the end of it because you do it so much and like you don't even really think about it as a reader until mm. if like if you lay it down as A B C. No, it's actually just an equation I do, <laughs> and it works so well. So I Thank think you. that's that's an awesome note for writers. Yeah, I was gonna ask uh, roughly from when you first had the idea of like I want to write this story. How long did it take you to you know basically arrive at, at this final draft? Like roughly, was it like? couple months several years i'm always curious i write very fast you know for okay. better or worse you know so the <laughs> research p- part of it was probably the longest part that probably took a few months but once i decided like okay i have enough mm-hmm. to get going yeah two months i think oh, you wow. know yeah, yeah, yeah. i write really fast i know <laughs> that's not a bad thing well that's what i try to do because i i really i i, I outline pretty thoroughly before i get through because just because i want to make sure that there's a story there yeah, yeah. for me you know that yeah. i can kind of do it in one sitting get through it and be like okay i, I see oprah's arc i see how this is going to take shape and yeah. then you know flesh it out go back and polish exactly mm-hmm. you think, oh sorry uh well uh, no a question that uh ali had uh, as she was leaving she kind of like whispered it to me to ask but uh have you considered uh maybe fleshing out more of the the gail stedman storyline as like just kind of like a fictionalized thing that was something that she said she really enjoyed the overall story but she felt like that would be nice to see like who Oprah really like is in her personal life outside of mm-hmm. the courtroom and I don't know if that's yeah, that, something you that thought would, about no I, I've definitely thought of exploring a lot of different avenues mm-hmm. that one was the one that I, that to me is tough because I'd have to take the most liberties with it you yeah. know what I mean mm-hmm. Yeah. and doing the research you can kind of figure out the, the moves that people are making, the conversations that people are having even if you don't know exactly what's being said you mm-hmm. know the, the crux of it and I'm not really sure what happens. She's such a private she person. Is. I don't even know what the inside of her apartment looks like. Yeah. I did kind of, I mean, whoever, you know, if this gets made, the production designer would have to just wing it because yeah. no one knows. Maybe ask her. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I do love how Stedman had no lines. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't yeah, think I important. even know what Stedman sounds like, to yeah. be perfectly honest. Yeah, I basically, well, right. To yeah. me, to me, that was sort of like, whenever you write a script like this, there's so many characters. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to do some condensing and combining. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of those things where I just gave anything that he might have said, I just gave to Gail. Yeah. You know, like but all the supportive things. That makes sense because when I think when people look at Oprah in real life, Gail is like the person you know to be like her, her buddy and like, right. you know, the one who you actually see her interacting with. And Stabman's just always there, but kind of yeah. like also never heard. Right. <laughs> like, and, He's you know. in the corner. Hi, guys. Yeah, basically. Well, that's, that's true. He, he didn't even show up uh, in Texas until the very end. Yeah. You know, until uh, she took the stand. So I don't, you know, there was nothing really to, to put in there. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Uh, what I think is so interesting about this is the balancing of the protagonists because there's no real antagonist. There's no real villain in this, even though Coin is kind of probably the worst in Engler, maybe, but they're really just two people that are kind of fighting for, well, one of them's doing their job and the other one's trying to save his job. Mm-hmm. So how did you, and, and no one's ever going to root against Oprah, right? right. Like you're never going to read it, like start a movie like, well, I hope Oprah loses by the end of this. So how did you find that of, of or how did you find that balance or create it, I should say, of making us kind of pulling for the cattlemen and honestly, like I, I like Coin, I liked Engler, mm-hmm. I liked all of them and the fact, you know, that moment that they have of, you know, when they pull out the letters and like, no, there's no way in hell we're giving up this trial. You get that real sense of like Texas pride. Um, how did you make it so that we weren't just like rooting against Oprah? Because yeah. I honestly wanted her to lose for half the script <laughs> right. until like halfway through. And I was like, all right, well, I guess. freedom of speech. God damn it. Yeah. You know, that's great. Um, well, I think one of the reasons that I responded to this is because I grew up in Texas. And so I knew those people. And I think right. you really have to have sympathy and empathy for your characters. Mm-hmm. And 
I did. I, I feel for him, you know? I, I know what that's like. And there, I think there's a lot of part of the country right now who's feeling, like, kind of left behind or not heard yeah. or, like, their way of life is under attack or they can't do things the way they've always done it before. And that's tough. That's scary. And sometimes you don't know what to do with that. You don't know what to do with that energy. And I feel like that's what those guys were, mm-hmm. is they felt like they were being attacked, they were being misunderstood, and this was the only thing that they could think t- to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so I sympathize with that. I get it, yeah. you know? So mm-hmm. I, I did try to... I'm, I'm glad you responded to it, because that's, that's what I responded to as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the most interesting things Interesting things about the beginning of the script is that you open on the two of them, and, and by the end of their conversation, you're kind of like... Hell yeah, let's do Oprah. <laughs> yeah, right, sounds like a great it. idea. You know, sounds yeah. like a famous, really bad bad famous last words. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. I think it it would have dramatically changed the script to start with Oprah. Like, I mm, think you yeah. you were really smart to wait twelve pages until we actually see her because it does reorient us as an audience. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any questions for us about the script? Um, were there any other? avenues that you wanted to be explored, anything that you felt like might, might be confusing, I, I, you know, in addition to things like opening Gale up and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Did you understand the point of view of the uh, the ranchers and stuff? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. yeah. And I love that this is a 92-page script. <laughs> yeah. Is that what it is? Which is yeah. just like, this could have gotten so boring so fast yeah. if you'd written like 20 more pages, sure. you know? So I think that this is incredibly concise. tight and it's concise. Tight. And um, oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, I, I like Gail so much that I'd, I'd love to see a little bit more of her. But honestly, yeah. like, I just don't, I don't really, like, want more here because <laughs> it's so good and, you know. Yeah, it's, and it's not, it's, that's not the story you're telling. Like, right. I, I, I get why Allie asked that question, but I also get why that's not a part of it. Because it's really about this moment in her life and, and how it ended up being really monumental. Like, I remember not really think of it, thinking of it in that way because even though I'm from Texas, I was like, they're not going to beat Oprah. Like, she's <laughs> Oprah. She beat Oprah. <laughs> uh, like, but, yeah, just to focus on that one aspect, because there's so much to Oprah, like, even in that ending monologue um, that she has, there's just so much life that she's lived that you could really go, you could do a whole story on Oprah's life, but it would probably be really long and exhausting to sit mm-hmm. through, because mm-hmm. being Oprah sounds like it's really long and exhausting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I really liked Seliger and Nancy. And mm. we, we saw a lot of them, but it would be interesting to maybe see them have a private conversation. Yeah. Mm. Um, it might just feel like fat, though, if you wrote it. <laughs> is he, like, is he kind of the the window into what actually happened in Texas for us, since he's the mayor? Because yeah. it's like, their, their storyline is so, like, quick, and it, it's not really too deep, but it's very impactful. Right. You know? Well, I think, yeah, exactly. Just seeing sort of the change of the town, and all that kind of, that stuff happened. You know, he said, like, don't you know, no red carpet, no flowers, right. and then he sent her flowers. And he sends at her the flowers, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. And Oprah didn't actually show up at her house. I made that part up, mm-hmm. but uh, she did call up uh, his wife to get tips about book club and where to get her hair done and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So That's great. you just call the get mayor's a- wife. Yeah, you just couldn't get away from it. Well, that was <laughs> yeah. that was her mission. Was like, okay, if I'm going to go to Texas, I'm going to win the town over. Yeah. I'm going to get them to love me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's something that when when Gail and Maya was introduced, I was like, this is probably true, but. This also made me realize how different Oprah's life is from, like, everyone mm. else's life. The yeah. fact that Maya Angelou is just going to roll up hanging and say, out. hey, like, what? <laughs> or, you know, like, you're hanging out with the mayor's wife. or And so it's nice to see that because sometimes I feel like people do forget that Oprah has this entirely oh. different life. Because, you know, she seems so amicable and, like, approachable. Right. Kind of. But, yeah. 
Yeah, so that was kind of nice to be reminded. Oh, yeah, she's like a superstar. I know, I love that. I was like, yeah, well, you know, Maya says, and I was like, that's got to be Maya Angelou, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, who else? <laughs> and then great. like five pages later, there she is. Yeah. Which I want to talk about that scene, because you said that you you wrote that scene. Right. You basically, you know, drew that all up. How did you write for Maya Angelou? Because that was, it was brilliant, you know? like, oh, um, And also putting Oprah in her place <laughs> with Maya Angelou was brilliant. Yeah. Well, I think just figuring out the dynamics, you know, figuring out that Maya... Oprah normally commands whatever room she's in, mm-hmm. except if Maya Angelou's there. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way I like to think right. of it. Then she's deferring to Maya. You know, yeah. she wants. She really genuinely cares, and she quotes her all the time. Yeah. That quote about you know when yeah. people show you who no, they I are, believe, believe them. She says that all the time, and it's you know I think that's how she lives her life. It's I feel like it, most black girls under a certain age use that a lot as well. Oh. When we're giving advice, when we're having like girl talk, mm-hmm. when somebody's complaining about a boy, and I'm like, well, if someone shows you who they are, believe <laughs> them, because um, that definitely like once Oprah said once because there's video of Maya saying that to Oprah, right. And that's the first time that Oprah's ever heard it, and then mm. she starts using it. But that's so she, funny. Like, yeah. that's how culture works, though, is it's filtered through Oprah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, if, yeah. if Maya had just said that, who, how many other, you know, teenagers would be quoting her, right? Yeah. But because Oprah brought that forward, then everyone's like, oh, yeah, tip your tongue. Right. Yeah. You zero in on that in the script. I mean, it's the Oprah effect. She yeah. has that power. Um, have you ever pictured this as a miniseries? Because mm. I couldn't help but think of what Ryan Murphy would do with this. Oh, uh, it'd be great, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you would just have to blow it out. I think I would do different moments, I guess. You know, yeah. if you wanted to do a broader biography of Oprah, mm-hmm. you could do a miniseries version. I, Yeah, I think there's not much more to this trial. I think it's, you know, sort of a succinct movie. Right. But mm-hmm. definitely there are other touchstones in Oprah's life that right. you could do. Yeah. You know, yeah. for sure. I just, he, he handles all those kind of pop cultural cases oh, so much best. better than they should be. Yeah. Which you've done here. It's just funny because, like, when all the OJ stuff happened two years ago, I was like, this isn't going to work. And then he managed to make it about today, which you've also done in this. I think whenever you're doing a throwback piece, you have to make sure that the themes are still relevant. Right. Yeah. right. Um, which you did, I think, really effectively here. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. I, someone like Ryan Murphy would be great for this. Yeah. yeah I, really. I, there's probably very few writers who would say no to Ryan Murphy. <laughs> but, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> um, cool. Well, any, anything else or questions um, for us or questions from the panel? No, thank you guys. You guys did such a great job reading. It was a lot of fun to, to see it on its feet. It's a pretty f- fresh script, so it's it's nice to see people read it. Yeah. Have you ever had it read before? No, it's the first time. Yeah, is there first anything uh, that you would, things that worked, didn't work, you want to change, things that stood out from your first table read? I don't know. I was actually really happy with it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's good. Yeah. You're allowed to be. That's fine. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I really liked it. I thought you guys did a great job, so thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. This has been really fun, Dan. Um, if people do, oh, really quick, I want to let you promote um, your book. Oh, yeah, it's uh, um, how to write uh, and sell a uh, web series. Uh, I'm at by Dan Williams on Twitter, so you can get info about the about the book. Um, I've done a few web series, and so this just shows you what to do. One of which is viewable on Hulu, is that right? Yeah, okay. Asylum. Uh-huh. Great, awesome. And I included your website on oh, your great. lower third, so people can connect with you there as well. Find me. Thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate it. It's been really, really fun. Um, For the rest of you guys, this is the Unproduced Table Read. We're here every Friday at 9 a.m. for movies and 10 a.m. for pilots. Um, We're going to keep doing it week by week. We'll be here at 10 a.m. next week. If you like today's script, I want to recommend another female-driven, empowering biopic, um, courtroom-related as well, called Spoon Fed, Mm. which follows Doris White, Mm. who is a kind of behind-the-scenes crusader for nutrition. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some, if you like this, you'll like that one as well. That was episode 35, so check that out. 
And if you want to follow more of what I'm doing, I review pilots weekly on our sister network, AfterBuzz, on Wednesday nights. We just watched Cobra Kai, the new YouTube Red oh, Series. Yeah. How was it? Much better than it should really? have been. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mm, it's kind of that a thing of if you go in with low expectations, you might be surprised by how much you like something. So yeah. check out Cobra Kai on YouTube Red. Cool. For the rest of you guys, where can they find you online? Hudson, we'll start with you. Uh, I'm Hudson Miller, and you won't find me anywhere online. I don't, I don't exist. <laughs> Secretive. So. Yeah, yes. Adrian. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Miss Adrian Snow. Uh, you guys can find me online at Andrew Guy. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.